Video ain't killing the radio star. It's just giving you one hell of a fucking good reason to enjoy the internet more. Smodco proudly presents SIT, Smodcast Internet Television, youtube.com slash csmod. Trustworthy Kev Smith coming at you, man, just to let you know about some smod shows coming your way very, very soon. Very soon. For example, Phoenix, Arizona, bitch, we're coming. Albuquerque, New Mexico, the only Albuquerque there is. We're coming, man. We're coming. We're coming hard with some Smodco shows. Chicago, we're coming all over your tits. Oh, we're coming like you wouldn't believe check this out me and ralph are going to reunite on may 24th at stand up live in phoenix arizona we were just out there a few months back with jay and silent bob get old had a blast come join us on may 24th man may 24th that's a thursday me and ralph are going to rock some hollywood babylon phoenix steez at the stand up live tickets available again csmod.com albuquerque new mexico me and muse are coming your way jay and silent bob are going to get old at the Ace Albuquerque Comic Expo, June 9th, at the Kiva Auditorium. Tickets at CSMOD. And looking way ahead in the future, June, that's not that much far away. June 14th, evening with Kevin Smith at Just for Laughs uh, at Chicago Theater. June 14th, that's a barn, man. Boy, you're going to have to come out in droves to help me out there. Uh, June 14th, uh, tickets available at csmod.com, or at least a link to... The Just for Laughs Fest. Anyway, that's enough for a horn, man. Kick back and enjoy these fine podcasts from uh, the, the makers of Smodco Entertainment. Smodco. First name you trust in podcasts or some such shit. Welcome to Spin Interview. I'm Kevin Smith. Uh, if you have laughed uh, in the last 20 years at something televised or something you've seen in, in the theater, chances are Dave Mandel was behind it. Uh, I met Dave Mandel going back, oh Christ, to 98, uh, 99-ish. It was right after Dogma, 99 I would say, right after Dogma. And, uh, my agents over at Endeavor at the time, you know, you got one agent and then you got the whole team. One of them is a guy named Ari Manuel. A lot of people seem to know him. His brother, Rom, worked for the government or did or something like that. Um, he, he uh, was, uh, kind of the template for the agent character on Entourage, um, that Jeremy Piven played. Ari Manuel goes, I got to hook you up with this guy, Dave Mandel. Um, he just came off Seinfeld. Uh, and he's really funny and, and I think you guys could do something really cool together. And the thing we wound up doing together was the clerk's cartoon. And one of the first meetings that I ever had with Dave was at a diner in New Jersey where 
he kind of mapped out a bit he while we were in the diner that right away i was like i fucking love this man he goes there's a bit i've always wanted to do man you know how whenever kids go like all right you're this you're this you're this he's going i want to do the same thing and he was doing it on the diner table with ketchup bottles and a pepper shaker and a salt shaker um and the joke was that somebody kept eating one of the so the map could never be finished or whatever right away i was just like a guy who created something by himself i.e clerks who was kind of like being introduced to somebody who's like hey man this guy's gonna work with you and help you make that clerks cartoon uh that that was always gonna be a tough meeting because i was a solo writer dave was the first guy that i was like all right i can write with this guy i had no idea how to write with other people now when i say dave mandel's made you laugh I briefly mentioned Seinfeld, but I'm going to throw a couple other institutions at you. Saturday Night Live. Dave was a writer for it. So you hear that, Chuck? He's very excited. Uh, as is Louis. Very excited about the fact that Dave wrote for SNL back in the day. And we're talking like the Adam Sandler. Uh, yeah, Adam Sandler years, that era. Um, uh, Seinfeld, as I mentioned. Um, and we'll talk about, remember the backwards episode? That's fucking Dave Mandel, uh, amongst many, many others. Uh, let me see. If you're, if you're an Adam Sandler fan, you remember, um, the, uh, the Lunch Lady Land piece that they did first on us. No, Dave was a piece of pizza in the background. Am I correct? Um, after, uh, after SNL and Seinfeld, uh, is in a, a brief stop at, in cultdom with the clerk's cartoon, more infamy than anything else, but something that, solidifies even indie credibility for a dude you know who's working for big institutions um and then goes from there to direct his own movie with some friends of his a film called euro trip which i know a lot of y'all have seen um and then if if that's not enough winds up working on the comedy of the last decade uh television and comedy of the last decade uh curb your enthusiasm uh, which episodes he winds up, I mean, we'll get into. Is there writing on Curb Your Enthusiasm? But I know he's directed as well. Uh, his most recent accomplishment, uh, shit, did I leave out? He worked with Mike Myers on Cat in the Hat. He'd probably like me to leave that out. <laughs> but he's worked with some big cats is what I'm saying. Uh, most recently, the big cat he's worked with is Sasha Baron Cohen in uh, the recently released uh, The Dictator. As a huge intro for a guy, dearly loved, one of the funniest people I've ever met. And most importantly, here on the record for time immemorial, and then that long list of fucking impressive credentials, if, if none of that grabbed you, this will. Without Dave Mandel, you would never have the expression, bear is driving, how can that be? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, I give you Dave Mandel. I feel like I should leave right now. It, it <laughs> it's will all, not get better than that. All down fucking yeah, People hill. are going to be going, that was so great. And then it turned to shit. <laughs> um, where you, you. <laughs> you've spent a lifetime being funny professionally, something that everybody who, who finds themselves in life with the ability to be quick with a quip or say the right thing, or even if you're not the funniest person in the room on paper, you're coming up with cool ideas. All of these people dream about the, a career that you've had how does it begin man you grew up in new york yes. i grew up in new york and uh it, it could not have begun more differently than this was not the plan this is like an accident 
this is like a great disappointment to my parents. <laughs> um, is you know, it the jazz singer? Yeah, kind of. I mean, it all borderline. Is there tearing jazz of, of garments there involved? There were no tearing of garments, and I think some of the Seinfeld paraphernalia helped get them past it. <laughs> right, right. Like, luckily, Seinfeld was Jewish, so it kind of helped. But uh, Instant credibility. Yeah, it's like, I feel like an old man now because I'm going to tell a story where it's like, well, I grew up when there used to be a middle class in New York City. <laughs> um, you know, we, I kind of grew up in the city and I, was a private school kid and you know when what is a private explain private um, school for back i grew up i was i'm born 1970 okay uh, so i'm 41 and basically you know when i was going to school you know there was a school across the street from our house and that school was the school that you walked two blocks the other way to get around <laughs> if you, had, if you had to get to broadway like it was just like there was like a playground there that is i was raised being taught like oh that's where you'll be murdered you know like <laughs> don't just, play there David. don't go near there like don't even play there you know it's just like whatever so life could have been as simple as like you wake up like four minutes before the school oh, bell literally it could have been like oh i'm gonna go home to go to the bathroom it could have been <laughs> it could have been that good because really that's the dream um and it, and unfortunately it was sort of like oh no 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 you can't go there we're going to send you to private school that up in school the bronx is river across yeah. from our house is built on an ancient indian burial yeah. ground <laughs> they will get you well you know it's so funny because everything loops around uh I, I am a dedicated still new york post reader and uh uh, in, you know, whatever it was, like 1979, they kidnapped that little kid, Aton Pates. Down. From that fucking school? No, not from that school. That was downtown, but that is like the defining point yeah. of like me and my like friends' childhood. That was when we all of a sudden, like, as a oh, city kid, it like captured your kid, imagination. It just changed everything. It captured our parents' imagination in the sense of, oh my God, I cannot let anybody out of our sight. And really? that was sort of what it was like for like, I had like, just the simplest kind of idyllic, like never had a sip of alcohol kind of <laughs> like girls, what are girls? Just I'm going to school to get into a good college. Uh, just that, that kind of, yeah, just that life. You yes. in a bubble, man. You had the bubble existence. Exactly. Because your parents were fucking terrified. Well, it was just like you a kid snatched. disappeared in one minute. Yeah. Right. Like it was that crazy. Oh my God. That's so, yeah. so, so wait. So yeah, sorry. before that, as a city kid, are you like the George Carlin city kid running I don't know. around? I'm not playing? necessarily a George Carlin city kid, but it definitely it was like, you know, more you're, you're going to go walk and you have your friends and, you know, and it was like friends were defined like, well, I had my friend that was like a block or two away. Then I had my East side friends that you had to take a <laughs> cab, but it just ever, it was just like, you know, everything changes. And then all of a sudden it's like, um, I get put in a cab and everyone, they write down like the driver's number and his license plate. <laughs> Everyone's and, and I don't have any money. The person on the other end has the money. So like the cabbie has to take me to where it, it, it became like, that thorough. It was like that kind of thing. Yeah. It was pretty wild. Lockdown. Yeah, exactly. So you're raised lockdown. like veal then at that yes, point. Yes. Actually very. Uh, and to this day, my quote unquote, my pen is like a museum to me. Like the the room is still hermetically sealed. It looks like I, I just woke place? up. Yeah, it looks like I just woke up and went to high school. Like literally, <laughs> like this morning. They know? didn't change it. They were it, just like I, it's literally the same. If you open closets and drawers, like there's other stuff, but literally it looks like like some kind of presidential birthplace. Like <laughs> What's on a, is there a poster on a wall and has, does it have my, tax in it? My heart, no, no, because I never had that up. We had wallpaper. Okay. What, what's up in my room is like my Harvard diploma. Okay. hanging. Um, there's like a, 
like a caricature from a bar mitzvah that I went to in 1983 <laughs> of me in, in like looking like I'm like in like an episode of like the Star Trek piece of the action, like a 60s gangster with like like Tommy guns okay. kind of a thing. Uh, that could not be more dated. Um, there might be like a Yankee pennant somewhere. There used to be a bulletin board. I think they took the bulletin board down. <laughs> David, these it. are the distractions you're allowed. <laughs> exactly. Funny caricatures of things that could never be. <laughs> Uh, to local teams. Yeah. Tommy guns are safe because they're not real anymore. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So you, where do you go to school? I went to a school called Horace Mann and, uh, and where is that? Uh, it's in up in Riverdale, which is really the Bronx, but it's like the, like they the seven a blocks sort of little tone on area. Exactly. Exactly. You know, like Archie comics, Archie and Riverdale kind of thing. Is that what that's based on? Um, there was. I, he, that's where that, that's the real Riverdale. And I think that's where those guys were kind of from or right. live near there, but no, no actual connection. A couple of teachers that looked like Weatherby and Grundy, but that's about <laughs> it. <laughs> and like a lot of like, those guys could be gay. Right. And, and a lot of those jughead hats. <laughs> uh, that's what I wore mostly exclusively. <laughs> Going to yeah. Horace Man. They're like, there he is. Mandel with the crown hat again. What is he the king of? Nobody His knows. His own little fiefdom. Um, okay. So you go to Horace Man. Who do you, are there people? Is it one of these places where like, you know who went here? Fucking. Steve Allen or something yeah, like yeah. that. Back uh, in the day. You know, the biggies were always, it's always like, it's great because it's like a weird mix. You get those, like, I'm sh- there are, like, I'm sure, like, really famous people, but then it's like, you know, Renee Richards, the guy, the man that turned into a woman tennis player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that guy. And then, uh, <laughs> so do they, do they promote that? With yeah, he would like, sh- or she would show up and like occasionally, like, for like, like events, like, so the school's like, tennis. you too, kids right, can become can, this is another the gender. You can have, yeah. Exactly. Um, and then, like, you know, uh, oh, God, I can't think of his name. A couple of, like, like, famous, like, mob lawyers, like, that kind of stuff. And, mm. you know, the usual kind of thing. I'm trying to think of the, the, the really, truly ironic thing was that uh, Horace Mann in history was the great proponent of public education. And they named an exclusive private school after him, which I always enjoyed. So that was sort of my first exposure to, to <laughs> humor. Yes, exactly. What is irony? Well, here we are. Yeah. We're educating yeah. you within the halls of it. You know what this guy did? Not, Not this. this. <laughs> he would have hated this and all of you. His dream in life was that you would all die at the hands of kids who were educated at public expense. Exactly. <laughs> Hated every one of us. And I went there truly, I mean, honestly, it, it is a place where you go and, you know, there was, it, it, I think my parents would admit this now, nothing was acceptable except, you know, some kind of Ivy League acceptance, which I proceeded to do. I was uh, president of the governing council. I wore, In high school? Oh, yeah. I wore like jacket and tie. We're like on our Fuck council meetings and that kind of stuff. Did it have a crest on the jacket? No crest. Just uh, we didn't have that. It wasn't like a uniform kind of thing. It was more like me just deciding that I'm going to. Oh, let that people, was your oh, choice? Oh, that was my choice. You were like, like an Alex P. Keen. Letting people know that today is a council meeting. So I'm. I, that's why I'm in a jacket. Yeah. <laughs> so you're not at this point. Young Dave Mandel isn't even thinking about a career in comedy. He's thinking about a career in student government. Well, the funniest thing is, though, is like. Yeah, I mean, I was I was a big Family Ties watcher. I, I love that show. Um, one of my favorite moments in life was a million years later, and I, I know I'm going all out of order, but uh, if anyone ever saw, I, we did a Curb episode um, that uh, it was where Larry dates a girl in a wheelchair, and he ends up with dating two girls in wheelchairs, <laughs> and that was. Uh, and I, I rarely will say this. It was 
an idea sort of that I was sort of an advancer of. Right. And it was my homage to Gary David Goldberg, uh, Alex B. Keaton, two dates to the prom. It was just two dates with a wheelchair. Is that, was that, is yeah. that episode? Is that what they do? Yeah. Basically, he's got a date. She, he can't find her. He needs a girl in a wheelchair because people think he's a good guy for having a wheelchair woman. He meets another wheelchair woman, brings her. Girl number one shows up anyway. And then he's literally got. <laughs> Two girls in wheelchairs. He puts one in the closet, and it's just that very kind of like, <laughs> very kind of Alex Keaton kind of. Hey, and it made yeah. the impression like so much so that years later, in a in a it writer's room, that thing with sharp knives with like Top Gun talent, it's, you're like, let's rip off Gary David Goldberg. You got to rip off the best, and uh, it was just one of those things where I felt like this is a thing everyone will know what this is, even if they don't know, remember why they know it. Go ahead. Oh, so. And now we'll add wheelchairs to the mix. It's, <laughs> nothing's better than that. Did you? Uh, do you remember almost every episode of Family Ties? I would think so. I might get a little rough in the back end when, like, they were like with, with the little boy, the little boy, but not even the little boy. Like, even like the last year, like the little boy, I probably remember early on. Uh-huh. Probably more like the last year or two when the little boy became like older, a man. Yeah, exactly. Was like Twenty. He was like yeah, forty-two. So <laughs> he was competing against Alex for student government positions. <laughs> do you remember the episode? A, my name is Alex. Uh, yeah, I probably don't know them by title. It was his friend. The only yeah. reason I know is because is that it was where his friend commits suicide? Fucking and, a. And it's like him talking to the psychiatrist, but like all in black and that kind of stuff. It yeah, was yeah. like completely different than every other episode. Yeah. His buddy kills himself, and it's like him essentially talking to a therapist, and they're doing a kind of version of flashback every once in a while. Like he'll talk about his parents, and, right. and they'll show up. It was like almost done like a fucking. Uh, like a small off Broadway. Yes, because it almost seemed like a stage with like the proscenium like, style. Yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, such yeah. a fucking good episode. That that shows. Like I remember trying to convince my wife; she'd never seen it, and I was like, "We should watch Family Ties." They were releasing it on DVD, and at first she was just like, "There's no way I can't make it through two episodes of this." But we got surprisingly deep into even the second season. It holds. Up. I was going to say the first couple of seasons, you know, and again. It's one of those things. It's almost like watching sometimes like early mash, those early seasons where there's like, like just a really silly, like anarchy quality to it. Like that one where it's like one of the first episodes of the first season where he takes, uh, Mallory's friends diet pills. Yes. And, and he gets, like, and he's all hyped. Yeah. They, they kept a clip from it in the opening credits. That's where he slides, slides right in the chair yeah. across the room from that episode because he's all hopped up on diet pills. I got to tell you this too. And again, I'm jumping all over the place, but. Get used to it, audience. We're going to get nowhere today. Um, so we used, uh, we did a curb episode with Michael J. Fox at the end of this last season because Larry was living in New York and we had this thing where his upstairs neighbor is Michael J. Fox playing himself and they kind of get into it. And Michael J. Fox is using his Parkinson's to kind of get <laughs> at Larry. And uh, Fox loved it and came and did it. And um, look, Obviously, the guy has Parkinson's. Right. Um, you know, when you see him, you know, the first time, you know, you are some, if you haven't seen him, you are struck for a moment of obviously he has a disease. He's moving but I constantly, will, right? Yeah. And obviously he can control it with medication and whatnot. But where I was going with this is when we, we were doing a scene where like in the middle of the night, Larry comes up knocking on the door because he's been just hearing clomping and he, the, the door is open and Fox is there and he's clearly wearing these just like, shit kicker boots and he's clearly just been jumping on the floor <laughs> to like screw with Larry but he pretends it's some part of the disease that he has to wear these boots to keep his feet straightened whatever and he would just do these little physicalities where you just went 
Alex Keaton. Yeah. Like, like, like disease, no disease. I don't care. Like, I see it like, in there. It's like, it's there and it's still there. And it's like amazing to watch him. And Were you on, incredible. you were on set with him the whole time? Oh, yeah, yeah, the whole time. How whole much time. Back to the Future did you, you know, you, I, is it you can't because I, it's like I, it it's, was where do you start where do you how do you ever end <laughs> right. we'd never shoot a show i mean that was honestly few guys that show that kind of come into wherever be it saturday live or wherever where i, I have to admit like just i was kind of in awe and right. I probably dropped the ball on the ability to sort of like be like here's my you know, list of fucking what, back to the future, future questions like, i've always had but but even more like like look i'm there i'm a director i'm an executive producer curb your enthusiasm there's an opportunity at least in theory to sit down and just kind of be like hey how you doing i'm blah blah blah, blah. and i sort of feel like he left there kind of going oh that guy was around like like i barely <laughs> like i just like just like i just was an idiot i was like a schoolgirl. it was just stupid but anyway um all right so take me yeah, back I'm to sorry. school girl oh you're, exactly. You're in Horse Man. In Horse Man, basically trying to get into Harvard, basically thinking, loving, by the way, loving TV and movies. Don't, the one but thing. Never I, as a career. One, the one thing I can say is like, while I was, I, I was sort of like, as you said, a veal, I, I was a veal that was allowed to watch as much TV, I guess, as veal are allowed to do. So I'm watching Letterman. I'm, wa- you know, I'm, I'm playing with stuff. Oh, I'm fuck, dude. That's fascinating. So Eton Pates, Eton Pates goes missing possibly the connection that gets me to watch a lot of tv yeah because yes. they're like you can't go, Don't out. go out just watch <laughs> here's TV. your friend exactly <laughs> you're a couple of friends one in each room yeah yeah i definitely you, I, did you have multiple I was tvs the, multiple tvs and i was the kid i was the kid who you wanted to come to our house because i had a tv in my bedroom and we had soda so like <laughs> oh my so god most of the sleepovers friend, most man. of the sleepovers were my house and i had a well when i was younger a shitload of star wars figures too. name brand yeah. sodas oh yeah oh fucking pepsi god, diet pepsi you yeah. said middle class is that what did your dad do what are your parents he was a do? lawyer my, my dad was a lawyer tax lawyer my mom was a teacher at the time I where, guess wait it, where yeah. did she teach she had taught up in harlem before at a i was born at a ps and I will, she, she has told me this since, which was she had a principal that on day one of like when she was up there as a young teacher, basically explained to her, this is real. You cannot hit the children, but if you get in their face and back them up, like up against the locker and then flinch with your hand. They will hit their own head in the locker, <laughs> and then you haven't touched them. So that was a lesson imparted to her by the principal of her PS. It's like a Rube Goldberg yes, exactly. way it's to punish way to the kid. They'll punish themselves. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, it was crazy. And so at I, that I, point, she's like, I don't want to teach up there. And when I was a little kid, and this is this is going to all sound horrible, um, <laughs> she still taught for a couple of years. Um and I, uh, she, we would, the private schools and the public schools had different holidays. So, I mean, I have memories of being like, I'll say six years old and going with her because I was off from school and she was teaching like nine year olds. And so I'm like five and they're nine, but like, you're being educated. By, well, by osmosis or the fact no, that you're in the room? No, I think or? it was more the reverse, which was I'm sitting there going, I don't understand. These are nine-year-olds. They're doing stuff like projects and things that I did like when I was four. It was like, oh, it was because just like, it was, it was, it was, it was a, here is the New York education system. Yeah. Just like, yikes. Yeah. But just very kind of slowed it down. It was to a crawl. crazy slowed down and of no reason. Uh, we watched it. And even like as a five-year-old, I was sort of struck like, 
our education system is in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> who's our elected official? Right. Who's who's responsible for this? Where's Mayor Koch? But uh, <laughs> so is it in Harvard? Yeah. I mean, basically, my like I said, eighteen years of my life was getting to Harvard, mm-hmm. and then I got into Harvard, and I went there. Quite honestly, I was a government major, thinking I had a vague thought in the back of my head somewhere that if I was a lawyer maybe it would be fun to be an entertainment lawyer like i knew what that was but right. that was that was about as far as those kind of thoughts went but by the way i'm an absolute comedy nerd i mean i'm besides letterman i'm like listening and memorizing comedy albums i mean what were Steve, your what were, uh, i mean think about it most people listening now comedy albums yeah, yeah dane know. cook does exactly those, and you're like oh my god it, now podcasts have kind of replaced comedy albums to a large degree growing up if you wanted to hear funny shit, you had to actually buy an album. They we had to buy a- an album, and obviously you could stay up and watch when some of those guys like came up and went on Carson and whatnot. Right. Although I was always struck by like you'd see a guy like Buddy Hackett, and you'd see him on like the the, the panel with Carson, and he was hilarious. It was really funny. And they'd go to commercial, and they came back, and I always could, and you could see Carson like dying, and I was always struck by I wanted to hear that show. That. Yeah. yeah. And we didn't have cable, so I, I they started doing like HBO specials, and we didn't have cable. I was like, that was the one thing we had television. Yeah, you had the my, you had the future house that everyone yeah, wanted to go to, except cable. So like, I like didn't have cable, didn't get to watch Call, didn't get to watch like Skinamax, didn't. I watched Friday Night Videos. I never had MTV. Yeah, like <laughs> oh oh my weird, god, that's like weird existence. Toasty yeah. oats of fucking video <laughs> exactly. shows at that point. That was my that was my exposure to videos. So like, oh, that Martha Quinn is such a hot BJ. You're like, what's Who? a BJ? Who? What? <laughs> How do you watch music? <laughs> um, but then, ironically. My folks, my father bought one of the first Betamaxes. So we had a Betamax. So before VHS, you had a Betamax? We had a Betamax with like a copy of Caddyshack and Meatballs that I like you watched. You watch relentlessly. Like you could just literally just watch and watch and watch. Which yeah. again, most people listening now would just be like, so what, man? Like You're talking about an era when when you didn't have the command of choice yeah you went to movies in the theater and and it was, and, it was and you, shocking and you prayed that they would run it on a network and you knew it was gonna be chopped up but you didn't care like that was you appreciated the chopped version as much as anything because it was a, it was an event i can remember like i don't know eight years old and like it was so exciting that something was going to be on the ABC Sunday night movie. Jaws. Like, yeah, exactly. And it was the just ABC like, Sunday night movie. Oh my Jaws. God. This is on television. Yeah. Oh my, yeah. this is the, the pinnacle of human achievement. Something that lived in a theater. Now, now I, I can, can watch see it. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it, it was, did you ever tape record movies? That's what I did before oh, like the just VH- audio only. Yes. Jaws. Oh, wow. When it aired on ABC, I put a tape recorder up to the, television just tape record the whole thing and then i'd listen to it i never thought of that's pretty great it was that but that's how desperate yeah a movie nerd was like if you wanted to recapture it more than just in the theater you had to wait fucking a year two years there was no there was no hbo man there was no like secondary and again i don't think this happens to the same extent this is why there are movies where i know i paid multiple times like to see them in theater like you would go yeah like Oh, Wrath of Khan? 
let's go and go again and go again or let's go see something else and then sneak into wrath of Khan yes. a second oh, time or a third time or fourth time. yeah stuff. exactly and i don't think anybody even bothers now people forget about people not even going to the theaters yeah, yeah. it's just like what oh, i'll watch it they're like, is that out? Yeah. And they go to the internet and they're like, oh, it's on Usenet. And they yeah. start downloading it. Exactly. And, it and they're like, like, if I like it here, maybe I'll go check it out later on. Yeah. And I just don't think you get that sort of level of like love. I mean, I guess Avengers being the exception. Right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. Exactly. But that's 70 years right. in the making love kind of thing. Um, all right. So that's, that's, whoa, that's very telling, man. You got two so, comedy flicks that you can watch relentlessly. I'm watching those. I'm listening, on to, this com- I'm listening to comedy albums, or I guess, what are your, what are your top too. albums or cassettes? What the are your craziest? Your the first one, the true, like, just love, 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 love was, uh, Steve Martin, the King Tut album. Just, right. um, just, and, and the Saturday Night Live thing started also early for me. Um, in a bizarre way, obviously it was on television. But like in like 79, they did this big green book. It was like a, it looked like a script. It was the Saturday. I remember that. Yeah. And it had like a coffee stain. Yes, exactly. And And they filled it with not just script pages, but like edits and notes and whatever. Yeah. And again, no sense that like, oh, I'm going to work there one day. But I was obsessed with that book, like trying to discern the little private jokes and, you know, just like, like obsessed with it. So, you know, Steve Martin's appearances on Saturday Night Live also, and just, you know, tying that all sort of together. And again, not from any kind of a career thing, just like this is what I was obsessed with. Um, and then later on, the Woody Allen album, the stand up comic album, which is like that collection of all his stand up stuff. Those were like the two. I don't know, I guess biggies for me at least. Yeah. Now, on the Steve Martin stuff, do you follow it to like cruel, sh- cruel oh, shoes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It just, at the time, it the, was the, the main obsession was that first one. And literally, um, is that the know, album? Is that the one that's, um, is that the live in concert or King Tut was its own album? Which is the one where he's like, that cat was the best fuck I ever had. That's that. Yeah. I, I, I remember that. I remember that album, but I remember that bit because it was so well timed. Just and, all that and yeah. dirty, but like, Dirty, smart dirty smart dirty and dirty enough that you wouldn't like if your mom was in the room you could hear it, you'd let it play all the way up to that line and then just kind of turn it down and be like hey uh, i gotta do something later just for that cat was the best fuck i ever had but it, he didn't work really blue that blue no at all. i think that that was, was just, just a well-timed it was fuck. just the setting them up by saying pussy and go come on people get your mind out of the gutter right beat beat that guy. Yeah. it was oh it was fucking genius and we used to i mean i had like a friend or two that was into it too and we would like set up our own little stage and like do the album you know what i mean like either to it almost like lip syncing in a weird crazy, way dude yeah. I, I did that with strange brew as well yeah with a kid, just, like it, doing a whole new album as well yeah exactly and just this is what we did and again no sense that this was in my own mind this wasn't a career i had no idea this was a career it you just, just did it like, for the fuck yeah of it. exactly it seemed like elves did it or whatever and so I went off to college thinking like I majored in government and I figured lawyer or something of that nature. Um, but I did know all about National Lampoon. That was another biggie. And then obviously from that, I knew of the Harvard Lampoon. National Lampoon, like, my, you know, a lot of cats remember it. Of course, there's probably a website now um, and, and know it from the movies or the straight right. video movies before that vacation, Animal House. And I but feel like in like it was this magazine that was again if there were few outlets right to to enjoy funny even pre-cable you know it was late at night or something like that sitcoms of course but 
uh, National Lampoon was an outlet, like Mad Magazine. You know, it's so funny. Crack. I was about to say, let's not undersell the, Mad and Crack. Oh, yeah. in our youth, yeah. they were they were amazing. They even crazy. I'll throw crazy in there. Uh, it as didn't well. matter at the time. I probably couldn't discern the levels of them, but uh, my I bet God, you a lot of good. people our age, Mad is a, a huge conduit for yeah. us as well because it's the first kind of notion of like of parody or satire like oh yeah network becomes network that's that's simple and i know it sounds silly but like when i and again it's one of these things i don't think i thought about it actively but now when i look back when you look at some of like the mad like the the columns in the mad that have been running forever like snappy answers to stupid questions right. the lighter side they're of. teaching you almost like how to write a scene or almost like how to write a sketch they're like they're bite-sized sort of here we are, we're setting it up, this is a dad, and we're at a table, and whatever, 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 end on the punchline, turn the page. Oh my God, And it's like, right. it's like teaching you, like, get in, get out. Like, like it's just sort of like showing you how to write, even though it, you didn't know like that's what it was doing. That's yeah. I hadn't even thought of that. It's true, man. Yeah. It is like early setup for that kind of stuff. So, mad, cracked crazy when you're young. When you get older, um, you had National Lampoon. Right. Which for some people was just, a re they would have tits in it and that was a big reason. that was yes. a big plus like they had some dirty funnies in it as well and and also periodically they'd have a photo funnies where a top eventually was, a top would come off totally yes. uh but for a lot of other folks it was about hey man here's this uh john hughes story called first blowjob that like fucking blew your hair yeah. back it was a written essay like about this glorious 1960s prom night that fucking ends with this horrible blowjob where you're like this is hysterical shit like that uh but also just presented like it was a great <laughs> like this like presented like it was like this treasured memory and you know you're in school and you're reading real ver i mean the thing that national lampoon i think did that was just so amazing was just sort of it would case whatever the joke was in a fo some form that you know that you were familiar with so you were like oh i'm reading this beloved like remembrance. a woman's magazine yes, exactly. like this is an essay from life or something right. and then it's like oh so <laughs> here, here comes the yeah. joke it is it, it that magazine it, that's that leads to stuff like that's around the same era you get into at least our generation, uh, Monty Python and stuff yep. like that. Start. I mean, we started and again. You know, Monty, Pi Monty Python, which around. we could, I could only watch like on PBS. Late at night. Yeah, late at oh night on PBS. God. It's just like, wait a second, I don't know. You know, and now of course it's just like Monty Python. Here it is. But again, like that was something you had to seek out, and and because of that, you treasured it so much more, and you only had that limited window to memorize it, or you can buy the album and then memorize bits that they they would put on the album, but. It's not like, oh man, I've, I've missed that line, uh, but I'll see it. You know, when they right. rerun it, there was no rerun. Right, it may never run again. <laughs> yeah. And if you found someone that liked it as much, that was a kindred spirit. It was you know like tapping I mean? yeah. your foot under the stall I, I, and someone yeah. fucking sucking you off. It's just like I found a like-minded right. individual. Just, we're, we're just simpatico. Oh yeah. my lord, this is so weird. I was like, at a, I remember being at summer camp one year, and I think the guy's name was Mark. I, I don't even remember his last name. Curly-haired Jew. And I remember, I believe we spent the summer, whatever the activities were, we were just running, literally just running. We just did stripes. We just did stripes over and over. Like just, just like we'd be there building Don't model leave. rockets. All the just plants doing, will die. Yeah. Just doing it as we're now we're playing Dungeons and Dragons. Now we're playing softball. Now we're fishing. It didn't, it just, 
that but was like, there yeah. are those two boys that only speak in movie lines. Yes, exactly. It just was, it was insanity. And yet it was wonderful. And <laughs> so then he, and then, that, he, then he sucked me off in a bad way. <laughs> <laughs> the ultimate camp yes. story. Um, so Nat Lamp, uh, National Lampoon, uh, is the magazine that was kind of, uh, kicked off from, from the Harvard, Harvard Lampoon. Lampoon. Um, founded by Doug Kenny and uh, Henry Beard and a couple of those guys. The guys that yes. wrote Animal yes, House. exactly. Like uh, Doug Kenny, uh, uh, um, what's his name? Henry Beard. Yeah. Uh, these oh. cats who in, who invented or started the Harvard Lampoon. Yeah, the Harvard Lampoon had been around, actually, I mean, neither here nor there. The Harvard Lampoon had been around at Harvard since like, Back in know, like 1876. Right. Yeah. And then in its early days, it was a huge just literary feeder, like, like life magazine editors and you know when that was that meant something and new the new yorker and all that kind of stuff. so if you worked on it in college right it was that like, was your pathway to life magazine yes exactly <laughs> right. the, 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 you know the, the career everyone dreamed of at the time <laughs> um and uh and then you know i think and then some in the 50s like john updike was lampoon so again it ha- always had this sort of literary side and then it slowly i think sort of moved into uh you know, just obviously, just it became obviously all about television, but it always did have this sort of comedy, it, it, you know, a comedy reputation. Right. And in the last few years, it probably is more known as like this kind of comedy mafia thing, just because the sheer number of, you know, I guess for lack of a better word, guys like myself that like that have come out Saturday Night Live, The Simpsons, a couple places that are early Letterman, like full of like. Harvard like Lampoon, Harvard Lampoon guys. How did you get that gig? How did you, why, and why? How do you go from student government to like, hey, maybe I'll write for Harvard Lampoon just because well, you're a big comedy I'll nerd? I'll tell you a sh- one shocking thing because you, we were talking, we've been talking about Alex P. Keaton. So you watch Family Ties and Alex P. Keaton says he's a Republican and you kind of go, oh, I don't, you know, I don't exactly know what a Republican is. <laughs> Obviously, Reagan's in power, but you read the papers and you talk to your folks, but Republic- he doesn't like beatniks. Right, exactly. Republicans <laughs> and Democrats. Well, I guess, first of all, one thing, Back then, I guess they did technically, there was such a thing as bipartisan and that, you know, the other party didn't spend a lot of time going, that guy isn't a citizen. You know, it was a, it was a different, it was a different era. You know what I mean? So, you know, you know, Tip O'Neill may not have liked Reagan, but he still worked to make the country a little bit better. <laughs> uh, I don't, you know, getting a little heady here, but, uh, anyway, take so, it back to comedy, man. Yeah, People sorry, are just sorry, like too real. Sorry, too sorry, real. sorry, sorry. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, I think Democrats and Republicans were a different thing back then. And, but as a kid, you kind of go, oh, Republican, Democrat, whatever. Um, I got to Harvard and I thought I was that guy. I thought I was sort of Alex P. Keaton Republican or something. And I remember going to a meeting early on because, you know, you're checking out activities at, at, at Harvard. And I went to a meeting of the Harvard Republican Club and I walk into the room. And all of a sudden, I was in Animal House because all of a sudden it was sort of like, um, why don't you stand over here with Jugdish and, uh, <laughs> and Larry? And it was just like, you know, vaguely chubby me with my sort of Jufro-ish kind of a thing. And it's like, like, he's no Republican. I'm not like these guys. Right. They're like four heads taller and with shiny teeth. And, and it was just that moment of, Oh, this is like I, Republicans. Oh, I, I'm not this. <laughs> I'm I mean, the other man. It was crazy. It was like this, like, just like, like lesson, like a punch to the gut. So you'll have yeah. lots to talk about, yeah, right? Exactly. Walk away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just 
sort of like, wow. And I realized very quickly, like, well, this isn't me. And I didn't necessarily know what was me, but I knew this wasn't me. You're like, why did I wear a jacket for all those fucking meetings yeah, in high school? What a waste of time. <laughs> that got me in. But anyway, um, <laughs> but, uh, I, I, I was obsessed <coughs> with the lampoon as a, as an institution because I knew all this stuff about it. Mm-hmm. Comedy nerd me. And so that was my other sort of, I'm going to go check this out. And I remember sort of, it had this cool castle headquarters in Cambridge. And that, you know, while I can't say to you, oh, they all seemed like me, at least it was like, these people are interesting and there's something here. And then, of course, the best thing of all happens, which is you, the way you get in as a writer, you can get in as a writer, an artist, or the business staff. Mm. Um, and obviously, wanted to, I, I've, in my mind, it was like, I want to be a writer. And you write three pieces of, you know, free form comedy, whatever you want. Okay. And then they're judged and you get into the second round, you write three more, and then you're taken, you have to be elected on. There is a fraternity element to right. it. There's, there's just it's, a, it's not secret paddles and darkness no, nothing, and candles, but there's nothing that crazy. But there's at, a, at some moment there is an election. And in theory, you should be elected if your stuff is really great, but that is not always the case. Right. It just is. Um, but on that first attempt, I wrote three pieces and got nowhere. I didn't even get to the second round. Um, and that hit me of like, I must get into this place. Right. Like, I shall have this. Like, like, <laughs> oh, like, it will like be the, mine. Yeah, the turn down was like, oh, I'm getting into this place. And that just be, that became my goal, which was get into this place. How long and did it take? It took forever. It, uh, like, it was. How many submissions do you think you made? I did not get in until the. Did I get in? It took me so much longer than it should have. I got in. I I didn't get in freshman year. I didn't get in sophomore year. I got in. I got in the beginning of my junior year. I so sh- all this time you keep reading. I sh- and- I'm reading, writing, learning, getting better. I should have gotten in my sophomore year. You had a piece I, you thought I was wrote a bunch good. of pieces, all of which you know I don't know were published. Not that that matters in the magazine because well fuck it, I published them once I was on, but um. They were sort of, they were very, there was, there was a, there was a uh, mini controversy of like that they were too, a little too racy and stuff in places. Really? Well, I think it was the all at once. I wrote a piece. I had one piece. It was like a ninja rabbi kind of a thing. And that was pretty harmless. And then I did this, I wrote this riff on, uh, remember Commando? Yeah. Commando, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Remember how gay the back end of that movie is with that guy, the bad guy who's like sort of chubby in the leather pants, the guy from road warrior (laughs) where he's kind of like, come on, John, stick it in and all that kind of stuff. So I wrote a piece called gay commando that was basically about a sort of homosexual special operatives. that's called in on these missions that kind of riffed off of that. And nobody saw, nobody like made the connection to the movie commando, which I still think is, obvious to this day <laughs> right and it was like this is like what you know are you homophobic and all this kind of stuff and i didn't get in and i got in the following semester which just you know to this day kind of haunts me because i feel like had i gotten in one semester earlier i'm I, and again none of this matters now right just at the time right it was making me just insane um you're obsessed with well, getting into the i castle. wanted to get in and and look, somewhere in there, it probably made the, the failure kept making me like a better writer. But I, by not getting in when I should have gotten in, I, when I finally did get in, 
It was, I couldn't run for office. And again, would my life be any different? Absolutely not. <laughs> but in my own heart, I feel like oh, I should have been fucking president on that lampoon. I should have been like, it sounds stupid, but it's just like, you know, they said they go like, Oh, Conan O'Brien, he was president because he was the funny guy. And I feel like I was that guy. Right. Just I got on so late. I couldn't like sort of, if only you had yes. sent, if only you would skip that Republican meeting. Exactly. <laughs> one, one extra week to work. Exactly. You're like, and that's why I hate Republicans as much as I do. Um, all right. So you get in. Let, let me ask you this yeah, though. Sorry. The pieces that they, that they rejected in the, in the previous attempts to yeah, get yeah. in. Did you ever revisit them years yeah, later? I have. I, I kept everything. And? and oh, some of them are horrible. Some <laughs> of them are the freshman year pieces are absolutely horrible. There's no, there's no doubt about it. And again, it's probably the way people do anything, which is I just thought like, oh, I'll just write down what I think is funny or what passes, you know, like sitting around with my buddies. And then I started getting, you know, once I sort of was like, okay, how do I do this seriously? And I started going back and, you know, to some extent, like going back and rereading like cruel shoes and rereading like Woody Allen stuff and just kind of looking at this stuff a little more, I don't know, I hate to say scientifically, but trying to kind of figure out like, how do I get it into something that's like two pages or whatever? Yeah. Like this person yeah. figured it out. Like I want it to be more shaped like this. Or, yeah, exactly. Or, or like, this. like, look how this one goes. Um, but soft, like I said, like when it, like sophomore year, when I look at some of those pieces and again, some of this was also, and again, there is a, fraternity element i didn't really know anybody i'm not sure i had any great sort of advocate kind of a thing which probably when you're a complete stranger if you had one person inside this guy's fucking funny i feel like i had pieces in my sophomore year that a lot of other people might have gotten in with kind of a thing it just is what it is you know and certainly that one comp where i didn't get in um, the one, uh, it was, it's called a comp, which is like a short for competition. Mm-hmm. That one, I, when I look at those pieces like Ninja Rabbi and Gay Commando, like those are really good pieces. Did you ever revisit them or reuse them? Anywhere? Oh, I, I, I mean, I printed them all in the, in the thing. I printed them all in the magazine once I was on. Um, cause <laughs> it's like, you know, fuck you. Okay. Um, um, you know, and I, I think Ninja Rabbi, I think I may have played with, I might have played with both of them when I was doing like sketch submissions years later for like in living color and like set, like, like just playing with turning them into stuff. Right. And then when I finally got on, when I look at that comp now, I mean, I, I, I don't care. I, I'll talk about it. No one will care in the world, but like, I, I mean, I wrote some fucking great pieces. I wrote a, uh, I wrote a, uh, like a really elaborate Tom Clancy parody was one of my pieces. Right. Um, uh, I wrote this thing called, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, I had just read, I had recently read the Zodiac Killer book at the time. So I did a Chinese Zodiac Killer piece about <laughs> a guy killing like a pig, a chicken, and it's just like, <laughs> like really like bizarre stuff. And, but like, I mean, look, I became a better writer and it sounds silly, but that's the thing, the lampoon. I always remembered when we started working together and you mentioned it at the very beginning. Like, you know, for you, it was a very different thing. Working Process with to suddenly work with others. But know? I also remember you telling me at some point when I had in, brought in a couple of the guys who I had, like, were Lampoon guys, Lookner and Brian Kelly, yeah. um, that you were surprised by how unprecious they were with their material. To that, this day. Like, that they would throw something out and it was a no, and then they threw something else out. And a lot of that basic stuff comes out of the Lampoon in the sense of, once I was in the lampoon or once someone is on, because people, you know, I, I bump into young writers here and the second you say lampoon, they go, oh, like somehow we cheated or something. Right, right. And I'm not going to, I can't, I have to admit, like there are certain, there were certain advantages of 
knowing that I could have met shook someone's hand at like a something and then send them material and go later on we met and I'm in the lampoon. And I do think, look, as a lampoon person, I will tell you, if a lampoon guy sends me his stuff and a stranger sends me some stuff, sorry, stranger, I am going to read the lampoon stuff. Right. But what my larger point was that what the lampoon does allow is however many years you're on it, it is a place where you get the shit kicked out of you if you throw up something that's hacky. Right. So you get the hacky beat out of you. So you get the what if he dresses up like a woman stuff just beaten out of you. <laughs> All that like first instinct stuff is just like, really? That's your joke? So you learn. Shut up about that stuff. You learn what's considered a better joke. And it's almost like you're in a writer's room for two or three years in college. Right. That sort of so that when you do emerge, I do believe you are, first of all, ahead of the pack as a writer. And number two, you have learned sort of like best joke wins as opposed to I've mine. Met, I, this is what I worked on. Yes. And, and yeah. you know, I, but, but I, but I, but and you, blah, 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 and it's like, no, I don't. Yeah. It's care. like, no, that's yeah. funny. We all laughed right. and that works. And you that become wins. desensitized enough to become way better at the job. Well, you've just been punched so many times for doing something bad. It's like, <laughs> you know, bad monkey. But how do yeah. you, but all right. So in Harvard, they're beating the fucking, uh, but he could wear a dress out right. But then you get to SNL and they're like, Sandler wants to wear a dress or and fucking look, David Spade wants to wear a dress. And that is, you know, uh, I, I, those guys are absolutely hilarious. I'll sit here and say not my favorite sketch. Right, There's right. no other way of putting it. I don't know how to say it. Um, you know, what can I possibly say? Uh, you know gap girls was not my thing it never was okay. i did not you know i i rewrote as a staff member there if i were in charge of the show i'm sorry it wouldn't have been on you right, know right um Jackie, but that's the harvard snob in you the yeah. harvard lampoon snob is just like we don't put dudes in the dresser robin williams yeah, wears just a dress. wouldn't do it yeah exactly and if i did do it i would be doing it in that kind of like every now and then when like Phil Hartman would wear a dress, but he was clearly like a serial killer named, you know, going, my name is Susan, like that thing. You know what I mean? Where it's just like the joke is clearly he's not a woman trying to get away with something. Right. You know, it's like, uh, you know, we did uh, when we did uh, when Randall was uh, the Japanese, whatever. Yeah, like, don't like, focus yeah, your Exactly. It's, I, I've always felt if I had to get into his, the, the Japanese guy's head. He was very aware that Randall was not a woman. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> right. It wasn't a it wasn't a great sort of scheme of some sort. He was just okay with right. it. It was kind of the uh, the more the, classic nobody's perfect kind of some like it hot. It's the like, pretense yeah. is there, and he was fine with the pretense. Yes, exactly. As long as you're willing to wear the kimono and walk a few <laughs> steps behind me and allow me to eat sushi <laughs> off your naked body, we've got an okay thing. But it's but the joke there. I mean, again, just to illustrate it, I sound like so didactic. Like the joke there isn't he's wearing a kimono. The right. joke is where we what we did with him. That he, <laughs> right. That he lived the life of a demure Japanese woman. Not that he's wearing a dress. That's I guess my larger point. What's genius about that is you've gone deeper into that fucking like fifteen second beat in that cartoon and made it make sense vis a vis like just uh, doing a, an SNL sketch. Like there was sheer brilliance at work in that bit. Uh, it's, it's the some of the stuff we did in uh, it sounds silly now because we're looping around you know we're all over the place but the one nice thing i will say and I, i'm sure you get this now is we're now finally whatever it is years later we're at the point where the people that were like our age and were comedy nerds like the 16 year old comedy nerd mm -hmm. is finally now like writing for rolling stone magazine or 
working on SNL or Letterman. And when I go back and I, you know, bump into somebody and I'm not talking about a friend, I finally can get, I can meet these kids that just go, I mean, I, I call them kids. They're adults, right. but they're going like, we watch that over and over and over. And they were doing for the clerk's cartoon, you know, what we were doing with like Steve Martin albums. And it's just like, yes, thank you. Finally. Yes. You know, you know, the fuck moment, you, fuck you, Lloyd Braun. You the know, moment, fuck you, Steve McPherson. You know, the moment somebody starts repeating comedic material you've put together, you join that. You feel like, oh my god, I'm part of the pantheon. Like I, I used to do raising Arizona dialogue. Yeah. And now people come up to me and fucking do dialogue for my movies. I'm like, oh my god, I'm part of the cycle. Uh, it is. It's a rush. It's yeah. a weird, uh, weird. But feeling. I had, I've had it. I've had the immediacy of it. I mean, I'm not going to, I can't, you know, make why I've had the immediacy of it with like Saturday night live. And obviously with Seinfeld, you know, whatever the water cooler moments, whatever, and all Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. So I had, I had experienced it, but I guess just because of what we went through with the, the animated show that the sort of the 10 year justification where I feel like, don't get me wrong. I'd like to think Seinfeld and stuff I wrote on Seinfeld inspired comedy writers, right? But I know, I know. The animated show inspired right writers. but and that I, was yeah. you that was you unleashed like that's for years people talk about the clerk's cartoon and i would always be like and we'll get to it as you can see there, there's a lot to get I'll to be back tomorrow yeah it will be a two-parter <laughs> i give you a heads up now but um when we get to it, it you'll see that it was very much where dave gets to be unleashed kind of like unchecked with the exception of fucking you know the disney right. touchstone of it all you really did get to like perfect example when most people think of that show they go oh my god the flintstones list bit that's mandel pure mandel i remember the moment he you pitched that when we were in the diner yeah we're, i mean that was a, one, one of the, the first things i was one, just yeah. like oh my god that's so fucking brilliant um just everything when you when we get done with the Smith interview, you'll you'll go, oh my god! Now I see it, the imprint, and you should feel proud that it inspired oh, cats to do to to do some comedic writing and whatnot. It was strong work, and for those that don't know or were too young to remember, ABC um, purchased six of these, ordered six episodes of this. We could have been on UPN. Oh, it could have been on UPN when you were talking about the the the, the, the Harvard Lampoon regret, where you're like, it doesn't really matter, but still, right? We had this there was moment. That moment. Oh, we had this moment where we pitched it everywhere. The Clerks cartoon, and we'll go back to how Dave gets from the Harvard Lampoon to SNL because that's important. But while it's yeah, while the while wound fresh, is still fresh, open and still gaping. Yeah. Oh, it was just such a. It was one of those moments that later defines you because you go, "I'll never let anybody talk me out of what I know is the right thing again." And by the way, those lessons are good, important but to have. I wish we had learned it on a different project. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, because every time I watch like Family Guy is on its nineteenth season, I'm like, "Wow, man!" Like we had a show that was just like that, or kind of you know by by some people's estimation a little sharper or whatever so i when it when it when to see that one work and to it died remember family guy died but then come back you know you were always like oh i I wish our balloon could reascend i I mean i hate i don't this ain't patting myself on the back and ain't patting you on the back but that show really was 
just a little bit ahead of its fucking time. I think it was if if like I don't know. I feel like place. if it was like today. I mean, just even alone of we'd, like we'd be richer than kings. Yeah. <laughs> that's the fucking real. That's the bomb of it all, man. Where it's like we made six real. Like it was almost like a British fucking sitcom. Six really strong, wonderful episodes, and six uh, like they're like nothing else because it is this bizarre. I mean, I, when I look back on it now, I mean, what's fun, fun to me is it is this wonderfully bizarre blend of you and me, like, <laughs> like, 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 like really crazily so in a really enjoyable way. But yes. it really is a good blend of you and me, and uh, like I'll put jokes from that up against any show. I, I defy you. I dare you to show me a show with the guts to do a clip show in their second episode. Right. I defy you to show me one that just switches to anime in the middle. I mean, just like, you know, just like whatever the show. Car. Bob's Burgers, screw you. It just, I don't <laughs> care. <you know? laughs> the car bit in the episode in the the Japanese, uh, the, the Korean, Korean animation, animation yeah. ending to uh, a big American party. That was all Dave Mandel, uh, brainchild, but his, what the joke he always wanted to do was like, these fucking Transformer cartoons. The kid's in the car. The car's a car. It becomes a man and the kid's fine. He should be hurt. So there's that bit where, you know, they, they get into the car and it transforms <laughs> and they're crushed to death and blood leaks. And then they read and then they did it like last year on the Simpsons. Yep. In the opening, I think it, I forget who did it, but it was, was that the bank? Was it, it was the Banksy, Banksy opening? Yeah. And he also did whipping animators too. I mean, I don't think he knew he was whatever, but I mean, it was just like, didn't Hello? It make, uh, did, yeah. but didn't it also make you feel like oddly validated? You're like, I yes, won't get the credit, but yes and no, because I just feel like, like I was, I guess that's what the good thing about the internet is. I was hoping people were going crazy somewhere, but <laughs> right. I don't know. That's the curse of Kevin Smith, dude. That's it. It, it brings you so far, but it'll always, Hold you back as well, unfortunately. So in those, when we pitched the cartoon, we pitched everywhere. Yeah. Um, we pitched ABC to Jamie Tarsus and yep, her crew. That's right. And they politely passed. We had pitched at UPN, which is now CW. Right. UPN and, and the WB teamed up. We're separate. Became the CW. Then, yeah. But back in these days, two separate competing yeah. networks, like Sirius XM. But then they just became one, one entity. We pitched to a dude named Dean Valentine, who was the, who ironically, uh, this, uh, this is neither here nor there, but I'll throw it in. Dean Valentine was previously at Disney Touchstone. Yes. Important part of the story. And I, when I was at Seinfeld in the back end of Seinfeld, they began to, they used to do these deals and uh, this would truly take us into a third episode. Um, (laughs) basically once upon a time, networks couldn't own the shows that they had on them so they they were encouraged to buy the best shows right now networks are allowed to own shows so they just put their own stuff on which is why television is garbage and no one ever wants to talk about that but that is the reason so in a world where they had to buy good shows there were production companies that were fighting over individuals and so a lot of us coming out of Seinfeld were a little bit like, I don't know, a little bit like a kind of an all-star team where everyone was kind of when trying Seinfeld to grab a, Sein- right, when it was to grab all a Seinfeld writer for their company. And I was lucky enough to be courted by a number of places. And Dean Valentine, who was the head of uh, Touchstone, began whining and dining me to come over to Touchstone and basically, you know, you know, really great and whatever. And, you know, we made me a really amazing offer and shook my hand. It was like, this is the beginning of a, a long and beautiful friendship. And I signed my deal. 
And about two weeks later, he left to become the head of UPN. Never, right. never saw the guy again. It was just like, and of course, uh, I'm now working at Touchstone. All of a sudden, Lloyd Braun is brought in. And so this guy who didn't hire me, who is now stuck with me to some extent, who didn't want me, I don't think, ever. And, Lloyd, and you had done episodes had, with the name, episodes right, of Seinfeld, Seinfeld with the name, the name Lloyd, Lloyd Braun, Braun which, you know, because Larry, I think, was a golf buddy something. of his. Exactly. But then you wind but up Lloyd working had, under this Lloyd guy. Braun had been a lawyer and had been at Brillstein Gray, who had tried to sign me mm-hmm. and had tried to sign me as a, a client, and I didn't, and then tried to sign when he was a lawyer, an entertainment lawyer, and then was uh, at Brillstein Gray, where they tried to sign me to their production company, and I didn't go there. And actually, there's a chapter in the now uh, deceased Bernie Brillstein's book that he doesn't use my name, but it's all, it's clearly about me being this sort of like asshole kid who never ran a show and turned down their offer. And as you know, and it's sort of like, okay, Bernie, great, whatever. And it's just sort of like, Guess what? I was offered a lot more money to work someplace else. And since none of you, you know, at the end of the day, you know, oh, I, you know, I owed loyalty to Bernie Brillstein. Right. Fuck you. I know you're dead, but fuck you. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, just like, you know, you, you read a book, you pick it up because I knew Bernie Brillstein. And I'm reading this going, oh, fuck, this is me. I mean, granted, right. he's not using my name, but. So, okay, I won't use his name. Uh, an old dead guy who used to like force people into Saturday Night Live contracts was an asshole. So there, I didn't use his name. Um, uh, but anyway, so all of a sudden now, Dean Valentine leaves and now Lloyd Braun, who ended up having a lot of the fate of clerks in his hands, is there and sort of is, you know, has this giant contract with me that I don't think he ever particularly wanted or liked and or whatever. Gi- it was giant, yeah, it was huge. Man. It was huge. It, he, yeah. Seinfeld ended, and for those that don't remember, when it ended, it was like, it was fucking massive. We were shooting Dogma at the time. Production stopped so that everyone could stand around and watch the final oh, episode and hilarious. then fucking bitch about and it for the next week. for the last, next 10 years. Yes, yeah. but still, it was, it, when it was ending, the lead up to the ending was like nothing you'd ever seen before. Yeah. Like even the fucking send off to MASH wasn't given as much coverage. It may have had more ratings, but it wasn't given as much media coverage yeah. and shit like that. So when it ended, everyone involved like yeah they just picked us off so cherry like, picking it was just like those guys went to dreamworks and signed a big deal and those guys went over there and signed a big deal and i went to i ultimately i you know i went to touchstone and so this all happens dean valentine lloyd Braun, whatever whatever so now we're working for lloyd braun and pitching dean valentine it's just sort of like and dean yeah. valentine to his credit was just like i like this show man i mean like he liked yeah. you enough to sign you up to the deal and then fuck off but then he was like hey here i am bring this show here and I think they would have. He given, genuinely loved that pitch. He really liked that pitch. He basically bought it in the room and he would have given us 13 episodes. He, t- he yeah. said, he yeah. literally said 13 on the air. Yep. And we would follow. Now, you know, this may not mean much to anyone now, but we were going to follow the Dilbert cartoon. Strong lead in right. at that point. At least Dilbert in theory, was yeah. at the height of its power. <laughs> um, so we were like, man, to get some of that Dilbert steam and money. That'd be amazing. And so they would have, UPN would have its own hour of animation. Yep. We were all delighted, man. This dude seemed to like what we were pitching. Um, some places, to be fair, do you remember we went to pitch to HBO and they were like, you're not going to curse? Right. What the fuck's the point? 
Um, UPM was just like, we get the sensibility. It totally works. Fox wasn't interested. They had, at that point, they had their Simpsons thing and they were looking at us like, yeah, like, yeah, come on, right, dude. Exactly. Well, yeah, yeah. What are we gonna-? And they had just canceled or, or no, had they had Family Guy? I don't know guy? where Family Guy was. I don't think it had happened at that point because I think it kind of came up during that year. So maybe they knew they had Family Guy. Who the hell knows at this point? Yeah, I can't remember where it was. It was definitely airing while we were making yes, our show because we the were, joke. hated it. Yes. Um, but I don't think it was I've on taken at that point. shit for years for the con- that you made a comment on the on the cl- commentary of the clerk. So what did clerk I say? Two, something about McFarland and oh. he thought thought it was me and still to this day. Oh, I'm sorry about that. It was I all me. Less. Allow me to say it was all me. Two, oh, he was takes- this the thing about the 9/11 plane? No, I, oh. I, no, I don't, no. I don't, no, no, it wasn't, it was just like, I think, I think it was in general, like, fuck this show and blah, blah, blah. And for some reason, he was just no. like, it's him. I, but they've taken like two shots at me, no. a family I'm guy. I'm sorry. It, it, I was, could, it was, it doesn't it was bother me, me, but it, allow me to say just, as a working comedy writer, one of the things that has made me crazy. This is controversial, dude. You, you sure care. you want to take yeah, a fucking care. stand? As you a, sure you want to Cartman this? Yeah, here you go. You ready? Go ahead. And I'm in proud company because, like, I mean, that Cartman episode is amazing. It is. A, that's a fantastic yeah. episode. But here's the thing. One of the things that has always driven me crazy, especially living in California, I didn't bump into it as much when I was back in New York mm-hmm. in my SNL days, is it's out here. I think Chris Rock has a joke. Like, back in New York, People have jobs like, oh, I'm a garbage man out here. Everybody's a screenwriter. It's like, are you a garbage man? No, I'm a screenwriter. I happen to, I do the garbage thing, but I want to read my script. That's right. I'm doing a bad version of one of Chris's really good jokes. <laughs> and it makes me crazy. It just does that. There's no, like, you can't just call yourself a lawyer. You have to take the LSAT. You can't call yourself a doctor. You take MCAT. You go to med school, whatever. But that doesn't exist for, for this, you know, for, for our thing. Yeah. And I've been to, um, my wife's got this friend, well, now ex-friend, whatever, who married this, like, reformed drug dealer, whatever, 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 and they stood up at his wedding, and it was like, you know, she's a this, and he's a screenwriter, and it was like, hello? It just it, it belittles what we do. Right. You know what I mean? It belittles what we do. That It just gets, the like, oh, comedy writer and screenwriter just get thrown around willy-nilly. And the reason is, is there has never been a litmus test. There has never been the ability to, like, dip a piece of paper in and go, Oh, red, you're, you know, you're a screenwriter. Green, right. you're not a screenwriter. And then luckily there's family guy and family guy is the litmus test. You find family guy funny. You're not funny. You don't find <laughs> it funny. I'll maybe I'll read your stuff. It is a piece of shit show. I don't care. David Mandel saying it, not Kevin Smith. It is a litmus test for comedy. Writers. How, how now you, and by the way, I am prepared. I have a, four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old i am prepared for them to find it the funniest show on earth i know that's going to happen that will be the curse of fatherhood yeah exactly (laughs) i get that's going to happen i'm gonna do my damnedest to teach them but i get it i don't care it is it is random for random sake and i'm not saying anything that hasn't been said it is not funny it rips off the simpsons and it is not funny and watching each of its further incarnations of other fat stupid dad shows on that network and he's a billionaire and good for him and all that stuff i don't i don't begrudge him the money right i just begrudge how terrible the shows are and now did you ever revisit it from the beginning like i watched the pilot and i was like ah this isn't really for me. i've seen various sketches over the years but i'm not i'm not like i it's gotta stop but i'm not obviously the guy i'm a big i don't Simpsons check fan. in with it every year but periodically you'll be I, like I, you know what maybe the, i was hard early on it. years just in my just general television watching it was sort of like oh they're they're plugging some anniversary show well i'll watch this one just to sort of go 
where is it? What is it? Uh, the Star Wars ones were always ones that I would pop back in on. And look, I love a Star Wars joke as much as the next guy, but I mean, just compare that alone to like those, uh, what the chicken ones, uh, why, why can't I think of the name? The stuff that, uh, Seth, uh, with the oh, puppets. robot chicken, robot chicken. Sorry. Uh, just compare just like two episodes of Star Wars to Star Wars. And it's just like, it's just like one is just dumb and easy. And just when, when comedy, when you can sit there as a comedy writer and, and sometimes even just regular people and say the jokes before they're said by something, that's, that is not the definition of a good comedy. It's not a sing along. It's not a, a joke along. Like these jokes <laughs> are so easy. Let's all do them together. The point is to do something that I haven't seen, right. something that makes me laugh, that is unique. And it's just night and day. It just I, 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 I. still drives you nuts to this yeah. day. Um, we were so wait, Sorry, jumping back yeah, in. No worries, we're, we're all are. over the place. Yeah. <laughs> Dean Valentine, UPN offers us thirteen on the air. Naturally, right. of all of anyone who's shown interest, UPN has shown the most. It's we all like it. Me, Dave, and Scott, because we're like, hey, small fish, right. big fish, small, small pond. pond. And the thing we should add though is this is when Disney had just acquired Miramax. Basically. Yes. So that's and another huge piece integral of the part of the, par of the puzzle. Harvey Weinstein, with his new master's owners, w clearly wanted to be like good soldier or something. I don't know. It came down yeah. to this: we uh, Dean Valentine called up Michael Eisner um, and said, "Hey, man, because they used to work together at, at right. Disney. Whatever you could do to push through this Clerks cartoon, we'd love to have it here. I really, really like it. So help us out." And he was like, "Right on." Apparently got off the phone and was like, what clerk's cartoon? Right. And why, if he wants it, why don't I want it? And we had to go back and re-pitch to ABC. The first time we pitched, it was an out here in right. California. And then we pitched in New York to Michael Eisner. And is, Bob Iger. Yeah, which is the craziest thing. That's right. Both of those guys. That was, it was the, that Harvey Weinstein. With made, Harvey there. Yes. With Harvey. The morning after the opening us, of pushing us. She's all that as well. Oh, okay. And he was a riding high from that. And he was pushing us toward this. He literally downstairs said, boys, I'm not going to tell you what to do, but the brass ring is within reach. You use the brass ring analogy, man. One of the only people I think who's ever used it outside of literature like that they actually used it to me. And I, it made an impact where I was like, nobody uses brass ring. Maybe that's how people become titans of, of, of industry right. like him. And also he's Harvey Weinstein. Or, he's got to yeah. know something. Right. He knows this dude fucking Eisner. Right. We're all in We're the same in a room place. With Michael Eisner, this is something. Yeah. Uh, it, it's got it. This is all making sense, I guess. I and mean, let's follow his lead. Oh. I, 13 on the air sounds smart to me. But anyway, we sit in a room. We repitch to two people who don't even crack a fucking smile. Yeah. Um, which, you know, whatever, like, you know, these dudes run companies. They're not supposed to be, be you know, fucking like, ah, let's all fucking laugh together. But you hope for a fucking reaction of some sort. It was just kind of like this comedy will be assimilated. Right. We will do it. This, and it was like they were calculating the money. Like, this will do well in Australia. Okay. It was almost like yeah. if they could have, it would have been a revisit to, and this is Jugbish, Sydney, and put us over in a corner. So you guys have lots to talk about, right? So we pitch to these cats and, you know, we, that was it. We leave. We get the call and the call is this. Uh, uh, ABC 
ABC, that's the brass right. ring that was being touted. Like UPN was, come on, you know, network, you're joking. Right. It's a cable station almost at best. ABC is prime and it's, it's a network. Now, meanwhile, when we pitched at this point, it was the third network. They were in absolute last place. <laughs> That's the only reason we got yeah. in the door, man, was because these cats were like desperate. I'm nothing is desperate. working. Yeah. Nothing is working. We will try anything. And they're like, cartoons? Fucking fine. I think the last cartoon they tried was Capital Critters after Simpsons had been on for a couple seasons. Uh, that was an excellent pull because I was about to say the Flintstones. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> these cats were just like, we'll give it a shot, man. We're in third. What the right. fuck? But the offer was this. We're not going to offer you 13 episodes on the air. That's just crazy UPN talk. We'll give you six episodes on ABC. And we're like, all right, six episodes on the air. Like, no, 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 no. We'll order six episodes. Uh, But presume, you know, of course they'll all go on the air. No one would ever make six and put them, (laughs) lock them away so no one could see them. (laughs) That could never happen. Why would we spend money if we didn't want people to ever see them? So. The offer was that 13 UPN, 13 on the air at UPN, uh, six episodes produced at ABC. We'll pay for the making of six. Harvey then says, brass ring, brass ring. He's just like, and I also remember people talking about eyes that like one episode on ABC would be just seen by more people than all 13 episodes on UPN, on UPN. blah, 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 blah. And also yeah. this one was floated a lot. This we're all in the same family, family. here, so right. this is taking money out of one pocket, just putting in the other. ABC won't even cancel us because Miramax, Disney, ABC—we're all one company. UPN might let us go after thirteen right. episodes. We can't trust them, but we can <laughs> trust these guys. Yes. I feel really good about. They're them. our partners, yeah. and the money wasn't even nearly as good. I remember that too. UPN money, even though it was more episodes, of course there'd be more money. The ABC money was just kind of like. Yeah, you got to tailor it within this. And it was still for this day and age, whatever we produce the episodes for. Yes. Far higher than what they normally Because they actually let us do. I mean, nowadays it would be a computer and it would be so much cheaper. There would have been no animatics. I mean, it would have been such a whole a different, different thing. thing. That's yeah. why, that's why there's reinterest now. Right. Because you Clark's could cartoon. do it so much easier. And yeah. there's a built in audience. Right. As you say, there are enough people going like, Oh, I fucking blah, blah, blah. And talking about it. enough people in positions of power going like, Oh my God, I like that. I remember, I remember Flintstones list. I remember the flashback episode, whatever. So, excuse me. At this point, we're all but told with guns to our heads. But in our own, in, I, I will say this, I, I, they basically, they pushed us, but we stepped forward. We, I mean, did. we did. We had yeah, to take I, the I final love, leap. I would love to sit here and now and just go, they made us. I was the Throw one. Them under the bus. I was the one going, it was UPN, please. <laughs> and they shut me up and threw a bag over my head. They didn't. They, we, they we, talked such yes. a fucking sound game in as much as like, yeah. it, it's almost being told like, look, uh, this is your cousin. Uh, we, you know, we, we share common, like, uh, right, my, their take care parent of you, yeah. is my brother. So fucking, they're always going to take care of you. And then your uncle fucking pulls your dick out and starts touching right. and you're like, dad, my uncle is not trustworthy. No, I don't think he did that really. Go back in. Yeah. <laughs> We're going away for two weeks. You're going to stay with your uncle. Wait, what? <laughs> dad, no. 13 on UPN, dad. Dad, my uncle just canceled and aired us in the summer. <laughs> what? That's what eventually, I, again, I don't want this to become the bitch fest. Eventually, that's oh, what happened. Whatever. We yeah. chose, we chose ABC and, and we did choose it. I mean, again, I will 
unfortunately say we did have me you and scott were just like what should we do we could do this we could do this and i will in my own mind i will say this when i think back on the decision the fact that they were in third place was part of it because there was there's always been that sense in like i don't know network nonsense of like you always want to go to the guy that's sort of dying because they will take chances whereas had they been number one i don't think we would have it would have entered our mind but again there's no or, uh, yeah. or they we wouldn't have even gotten well, in the right. room they probably if wouldn't they were number care. one. He exactly. would Dean Valentine yeah. would call they would have been like, take it, whatever yeah, 13, it is. 13, go ahead, be happy. Yeah. By the time we turned in the six episodes, and it took, you know, like eight, nine months, right. I think, to produce them all. Um a, a bizarre yeah. little phenomenon happened at ABC. Regis Philbin started hosting a game show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire that took the fuck off yep. one night a week. And then they moved it to prime time. And then and it then, was on every night. Then they were really on like four <laughs> nights, five nights a week. They yeah. started airing it three to four nights a week, dude, where they literally would just air it at like eight o'clock, yep. eight thirty. They stopped making like, you know, like fuck making film, you know, uh, fiction entertainment or whatever, or producing plots or, you know, uh, characters. We're just going to make fucking game shows. Uh, deal or no deal came on the, the heels of that. Who was the chick who was like, you know, you, uh, the you goodbye. Remember oh right, uh, the British chick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You are the yeah. last whatever. Goodbye. I forget that. All that shit came from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. This thing fucking blew up, and it blew up. It fucking went fast, hard like a comet, and then disappeared. I mean, now there's a daytime version still, sure, sure. Meredith Bayer, but this primetime version it took over ABC schedule. Yep. And the ratings were fucking they, huge. They went from third to first. They were first place but off of nothing that they did other than put a game show on. I mean, and you started to feel like you were living like in the running man or something. <laughs> like like I can't explain it. We're like, really this is what our society has come to this. <laughs> and only I yeah. mean years later you'd be like this was the standard. Like it almost kind of began beginning of the end i guess for for uh, as you say like uh, networks started creating their own fucking shows and just that and reality and all that kind of stuff it was just sort of like oh yeah the um so all right we're hold on i'm boy i lost my place all right so they get our episodes we, we, we hand them in six episodes right. and they love them at least in the abstract if people remember we had an ad on the super bowl yes let's never forget that the clerk's cartoon had a 30 second spot on the Super Bowl. I don't know what they cost that was it year. 30 or 15. It's got it to be 15. Maybe it was 15. But even so, I guess time. You have to figure that's a half a million dollar ad Easily. somewhere. Yeah. Like ABC had the Super Bowl yep. that year. So they had a certain amount of airtime that they could spend on their shows. And you promo that, your best. Not You don't promo <laughs> things you're putting on in June. You, yes. do, you promo your best. This was yeah. meant because we were meant to debut March or yeah, something we were gonna like, be there within big. their season. Yep. So. There's our ad in the Super Bowl, man. Like I was hearing from people going, like, "You've made it." Like, oh, I'm like, we have, haven't we? We're gonna be billionaires. This cartoon's gonna run forever. Then I don't know when it happened, but I mean, I, I, do you I, know? I I I, I kind of remember, but I was just gonna say this. I was just gonna say about the Super Bowl. I, I've been doing this now since ninety two. Professional. I've been, I've been like writing since I was got out of college since ninety two, and I can tell you in that in my you know, 20 plus year career, I've been involved with only two projects that have had Super Bowl ads. One was Clerks and the other was recently with the dictator having an ad. (laughs) That's it. So it's not like, oh yeah, Super Bowl ad. I mean, I, we, I cannot. It happens all the time, people. No. It was insane. We were on the Super Bowl 
And I believe somewhere in the middle there, they tested it. That's that. That was the only explanation I ever got. That they never yeah. they told they us. Test, no, remember because we went to one test. Remember we were we stood outside like, yes. the room, which is just the most painful thing you can ever do. Is because these people start talking, and then someone makes a really good point, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I like that guy." Right. And then he goes, "But I hate the show." And you're like, "Get that guy out of there!" <laughs> and it just and you're just listening to just dummies talk about dumb things and that's what testing is and it just smooths everything out because they they don't know they've never seen it before right. and it's it's why guys like steve jobs never tested anything you know steve jobs always talked about apple with like i'm giving people products that they don't know they want that's what clerks the cartoon was <laughs> to show that people it didn't was the know apple they, of yeah, animation they didn't know they wanted it but that's what they wanted because when you listen to them and they go well, it's not like this, and it's not like that, it's not like that. That's right. That's yeah. the good thing. It's not like it's that. It's true. Yeah. Like, that show didn't sheep it up. It wasn't like you couldn't fit it into a mold. Like, if right. they were hoping we were doing The Simpsons, we couldn't. Like, The Simpsons is beautiful and and and, and organically grew into what it, it became. We weren't even going, trying to touch the hem of that. Dave was just like, let's just do, like, this version. We'll take Clerks, and we put, add the sensibility us like who we are in real life more so than just like the character it was truly stuff that was making us laugh but i i I will argue in all sorts of network speak that you had that core relationship of dante and randall that comes from the film that is a you know it's a it's you know whatever man man love right right, i don't know what else you want to what they would later call bromance bromance there you go (laughs) exactly we were again ahead of ahead of the curve on that one it it is that thing of like that grounded it that you felt like as much as they're sort of screwing with each other and lord knows we always enjoyed (laughs) a chance to put dante in a diaper (laughs) with a the biggest idiot ever swinging a cat (laughs) but nevertheless i mean i do think that did ground it that was our family dinner table of the Simpsons, but whatever. So I do think there was something there to hang your hat on or whatever, but it was unlike anything else. And of course their testing came back, you know, not so great. And, uh, but and, which happens with comedy because it's, you know, I Seinfeld, the pilot episode, go read, oh. the, go read those testing results. And yeah. they would throw that at us constantly. When they moved us out of the se- mid season right. start, we were supposed to have, uh, we were told what, and they were like, "No, no, 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 no. Oh, we're putting you yeah. in the summer." And Dave, who's had experience with TV, was just red flag went up, and he was just like, "Fucking summer, summer series. What are you talking about?" And then quickly, the the salve on the wound was always like, "Hey, hey, hey, Seinfeld started in the summer, buddy." And so we were like, "Oh yeah, Seinfeld was outside the box. We're a little outside the box. I guess maybe they're looking out for us, you know, one hand into one pocket into the other, all one family. There were definitely some hands in our pants, but I'm not sure. (laughs) Like I said, (laughs) uncle. Yeah. And the thing that was the the worst part of the success of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, and and there is no other word except success, is it." It emboldened them to think they were geniuses. That, that's that's the bigger issue. Is they put a game show on, and it was a phenomenon. I, I certainly can't argue it was oh, a phenomenon. It, was, it still exists but today. That didn't make them geniuses, and they just were walking around like they knew everything about comedy or drama or whatever it was because they put a game show on. Them, right, right. You know? And that's the most infuriating part. Yeah. That that essentially was probably the nail in our coffin. That in our fucking our testing scores, I guess. Right. We aired in the summer. First time we aired. Do you remember the rating? I remember being told seven million people watched your well, show. Also, they aired out of order too. 
They had the first. They didn't even air the first episode. Right. They aired. Did they air the second episode first? I think they aired the second episode first, which, which of course, then it, made you 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 lost the sort of idea of the second episode as a clip show, which is so much funnier than here's something which just honestly, as a first episode, just seemed a little probably confusing. Plus, the joke of doing clips from episode one is completely lost because there's no episode one. Right. But our pilot episode did try and kind of go, if you don't know what this is, this is who these guys are. This is where they live. These are some of the characters. We did write a pilot as per order to kind of and they were like, we world. don't want to show yeah. this first. We want to show your second episode yeah. first. They show it. Seven million people watch it. I'm like, that's more people than I've ever seen anything I've ever done before. Like, this is amazing. In 2000, this was. Yep. That number it, it, at not, we were nine o'clock show. Seven million people watching at nine o'clock was unacceptable. And also the drop off from Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which was our lead in, was like, Substantial. It went, like 40 million people watching a game show to this. And, you know, and again, of course, nowadays, seven million people would be throwing parades for us. They'd be like, <laughs> TV, we'd be on the, Kevin and I would be literally on the cover of TV guy. And you do not want to see us on the cover of TV guy. We'd just be sitting there. Every, like, every issue. Every geniuses yeah. again. <laughs> Still. It is, uh, it's true, man. It was a big drop. So much so that they let us air one more time. I don't even remember what the second ratings were. But I remember the call after the second episode aired the next morning was from Endeavor going, uh, yeah, they're not going to air the rest. And we were like, what? They're like, they're going to run Drew Carey reruns instead. And so they rerun some old Drew Carey episodes, which got better ratings than we did. And they were felt justified. And that was it. Weren't massively better, marginally better. But still, there were people, I guess, were like, ah, something familiar, familiar Drew Carey. And that was the end of. The clerk's cartoon until right. we went to, to home video and then we did our, our put them in order, got to record commentary tracks and stuff like that. And the commentary tracks, I, I, I can, I, I can tell you, I've never, I've never gone to an analyst or a psychiatrist or anything, <laughs> but I do believe those commentary tracks were as close as I've ever come to, to therapy. Just sort of like, okay, I can just kind of work it out here now and just kind of. This is well, is. 10 yeah. years later, it's yeah. round two as yes, well. Yes, it's not, I'm not cured, but at least I got a <laughs> lot of it out of my system. Back but before then. the hell of that, you're a kid writing for the lampoon. You graduate. Um, one, again, one of the unfortunate advantages, I will say, because there are, you know, you know, young writers sitting there going, you fucking Harvard asshole. Um, <laughs> um you know, the Lampoon would do these different projects every year. You, they used to be always in print. Like if you've ever read Board of the Rings, which was like a. Oh my God, yeah, I had that book. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was a summer project. They did Dune once as well. They did Dune. They did parodies like USA Today. You know, they would mm-hmm. do these summer projects. So when I was still a junior, the Lampoon got its first TV gig, which was with Comedy Central, only it had just become Comedy Central. It was when. Ha and the Comedy Channel merged because Viacom was losing like $10 million a year and like Time Warner was losing $10 million a year. And they were like, let's merge them and only lose $5 million a year. (laughs) And they made Comedy Central and it was like not even basic cable at that point. Like you had to pay like the $2 extra or something to get it. Circa 95. Uh, This would have been, no, no, this would have been a little earlier. This would have been 92. Wow. Yeah. This would have been like 92. Okay. And so the Lampoon got hired to do a fake 10th anniversary retrospective of MTV. 
We did this thing called MTV Give Me Back My Life. Um, and it was a Harvard Lampoon TV thing that we did at Comedy Central. And, uh, it was my first sort of TV sort of experience and it was wonderful and awful and all those kinds of things. I don't think the show is particularly great, but you know, just learn so much. Right. But the really cool thing was, um, uh, Al Franken was, uh, an advisor to Comedy Central, which basically meant they had given him an office so he could write the Stuart Smalley book. <laughs> um, and, you know, and they paid for it. Um, and so he was sort of, you know, kind of adding stuff in to the script and kind of supervising a little bit. Uh, also another guy named Billy Kimball. I don't know if you ever met Billy. Uh, another, he was a lampoon guy and he was sort of a producer there and he sort of helped put it together. Um, anyway, and so, Regardless of that show, all of a sudden I'm like working at Comedy Central. I'm, you so you go from the lampoon yeah, to like I'm I got meeting, a job. Yeah, in TV. I'm, yeah, I'm meeting Al Franken, who was just like at that point, you know, I was such a, an SNL just freak. Not only that script book, but the uh, the Hill and Weingard backstage history. Yes, of SNL, oh, I love which that I had book. memorized yes. basically. It I was mean, a just, Bible, yeah, exactly. Just everything. Al, Al Franken. A lot of people, of course, know uh, currently a Senator, politician, Al Franken, Senator Al Franken. Yes. But way back in the day, man, they were SNL writers who then tra- kind of made the transition to on-camera exactly. talent, the Franken and Davis show. Um, with one of the, my favorite bits of all time still on SNL is when he became a Harry Krishna yep. for the one Franken and Davis <laughs> exactly. where, where he's trying to like, he's like a lot of people and he's trying to go with inner peace. He's no longer doing harsh comedy. But, but they're sort of trying to still do a bit. So. <laughs> and and, and uh, I think it's uh, Davis is going like, you know, a lot of people talk about how the difference between traffic in New York and L.A. It's just wacky, man. <laughs> Franken's like, but a lot of people don't understand the huge differences in traffic patterns between New Delhi and Bangladesh. <laughs> 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 and then, like, Davis goes nuts where he's like, I'm not going to do it. And he cuts his he cuts fucking the little thingy off. Yeah. <laughs> he cuts his hair ponytail off. And fucking uh, Al Franken goes nuts. He's like, nah, I look like a Buddhist. <laughs> Such a great bit. And then I remember they did, uh, like it, they were in that, they took a lot more center stage or like they became more front and center when like, uh, John Belushi and right. Dan Aykroyd left la- that, that Bill Murray that 79 last year, year of Lorne Michaels before he came back. Right. They sort of almost were basically cast members. They, so they yeah, were, yeah, at that they were point. There. And then trading places, which is what I think a lot of people remember them for as the baggage handlers on the train in the back. That's right. They had like a juicy kind of cut to role that people always remember of that era. If you, if you love that era of comedy. And then of course, uh, um, Al Franken came back to SNL years later and did Stuart Smalley amongst other things. And then, you know, the, the uh, radio show that he did for a long time. When he was on SNL, he was always into politics. And I mean, even from the early days, I think, Franken Davis wrote things like, you know, like Dan Aykroyd as Nixon, you know, like with, you know, some of those. Praying, yeah. get down on your yes, knees. Get, yes, exactly. Um, and so, uh, you know, was always, I think, active as a, as a, and started doing the, remember that bit where he would, uh, wear the satellite dish on his head? Yes. And, and I am, uh, right. I'm here in the middle of, but he started going out like really to like presidential, like primaries and stuff and really started getting into it. So even, even before the Senate and like the, the liberal radio show, I mean, he was always like 
into politics like like nobody's business and is he the guy that gets you in is he the guy that's like you should come right for us he i we sort of hit it off we had this wonderful thing and the summer ends and i had to go back to college for my senior year after working on a yeah, tv which show was just the most weirdest thing in the world <laughs> you're yeah, like guys like, this is yeah. stupid and the other two guys i were working with were a year older so they were they packed up and moved to california and i was like and now i'm back to cambridge right now i'm there just going what 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 the hell am i my senior year there, I was just like, I was like writing scripts and getting credit for writing them. And I remember going up to like someone at the end of the year, the woman in the office just going, if I had failed and I wasn't going to graduate, I'd know by now. I mean, it was just like, right. I was just there using that. At that point, I was using Harvard like it was some sort of like DeVry Institute of Comedy. Cause I, <laughs> all I was doing at this point, it was, it had gone from like, well, this is fun. I'm an entertainment lawyer or something to. Right. I'm doing this for a living. I, I got to do I, this. The, yeah, the I, year I I'm done here, I'm do out it. to yeah, Hollywood. I can't not do this. Um, and it was weird because I'm there my senior year and I'm getting phone calls like from in living color to submit a packet and stuff like that. I mean, really like weird and interesting at the time. And I got a phone call from the Comedy Central people that, again, Billy Kimball mm -hmm. um, uh, was going to be producing with Al comedy coverage of the Democratic and Republican convention. So this was what they called indecision 92. So this is before Dennis, this. before Dennis Miller, before John Stewart. This was the sort of Comedy Central's first foray. This is before even the Bill Maher show. Is this like Chris Rock would do it a year or two later, wouldn't he? I think so. Yeah, point. yeah. But this exactly. Is but this is the early. This is Al did it first, where he <coughs> he hosted it from like a command center. Um, I think I'm trying to remember the Democratic one was in New York City that year, which mm. was really cool. The Democratic uh, convention. And then the Republican one was somewhere else. And so we did like, it was almost like, and it was amazing. What was really amazing was, you know, you're filling time because the convention is pretty boring. It was like two or three hours a night. And it was that thing where we just had to fill like almost like a, like a, like a phonathon where we could kind of do anything. And I don't, you know, again, it's of the time. So it's like Marilyn Quayle, Dan Quayle's wife had written a, like a potboiler like mystery about like Cuba and like a Republican senator hero. And so we like Al would read it to children. Then we did a puppet show version of it. We just every night we would do more of it. Then by the end we were fully enacting it with like, it's like uh, proto daily shows. Yeah. Just stuff. like exactly. We were doing a lot of stuff that I don't think Al gets credit for and Billy gets credit for a lot of things. It's sort of, because no one was watching back right. then. It was just, it didn't have clear. Well, somebody was watching. Yeah, People but, that would yes, later exactly. on be like, let's do a more refined version of this. Um, but, you know, just again, you know, and even just the name Indecision 92, like people don't even realize that's where it was coined. And it was amazing. Uh, it was, it was incredible. And I just, I was working with Al like nonstop, which was for me, like you'd have those out of body moments of just like, I'm writing something with Al Franken. Right. I'm writing something with Al Franken. And, you know, what can I tell you? You know, became very friendly with him, got to know his family and all that kind of stuff. And at the end of the summer, he just said to me one day, and it's like, you know, it's in, it's that moment. You Was never it ever, were you, were you ever thinking in the back of your mind he might ask you? Or no. I, it, it wasn't that, even part of the plan. You were just like. All I thought was in my own mind, it was like, I will, like everybody else, I'm going to do a Letterman submission. I'm going to do a Saturday Night Live. I will, I will submit. Right. But. At the, I, I can remember the end of the summer and he just basically was just like, uh, I, I want to talk to Lauren and Jim about you. Uh, I think you'd be good on the show. And it was just like, what year? Yeah. What year? This would have been, uh, this would have been summer of 92. I graduated in June of 92. And so this would have been the end of summer of 92. 
And so he, we, the Republican convention was in August. He probably said this to me like two weeks later. Um, a week or two after that, I had a drink with Jim Downey, um, who had writer, at the time. head writer, producer at the time. And, uh, you know, truly, I mean, Jim is one of those guys where I think Al, because of his on screen stuff and whatever, and I think Al would admit this too. Um, just probably a little more well known. Although Jim in, in recent years has gotten some press for his writing, but Jim Downey, just one of, if not the funniest human beings on the face of the earth. And one of those guys that everybody agrees with. So like if you're into comedy and you say to yourself like, Oh, uh, Robert Smigel's hilarious. Ask Robert Smigel what he thinks of Jim Downey and he will tell you Jim Downey's hilarious. He's the yeah, comedian's if you, comedian. If you've heard the of writers. George Meyer, George Meyer will tell you, Oh, Jim Downey. I mean, it, it, he is just that guy that has been there all throughout SNL and has been involved with Fred Garvin, male prostitute, but also Wayne's World. And he's also the guy, like, he's the face of Change Bank. That's him. Like, if you remember Change Bank, Change Bank? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's Jim Downey. So he would act a little bit every now and then. I didn't yeah, know that. That's, that's wild. Hey, the man is just, uh, like, uh, he's brilliant. Uh, I told a story once in, uh, the second book is the second Saturday Night Live book they did, the Tom Shales The Tom book, Shales one, which the, is more yeah, of an oral history. Yes, it's kind an of oral thing. history, which I thought was a bit of a cop out. I thought they were going to write a book, but but instead they were history. just like, here's what other people said. Yeah, I just always I like a little more context, but so be it. Mm. Um, uh, but I did tell this story in there, which is just to tell you about Jim Downey for three more seconds. Is um, I remember once when John Malkovich hosted, and we did a. Uh, we did a, a Menendez brothers sketch. If you remember the Menendez brothers, Menendez brothers were the California, the two California twins, twi- like tennis players who murdered their parents. And uh, Malkovich's face, there was like those guys. Those guys had a look, and you could sort of see in Malkovich that with a funny wig, he could look like a Menendez brother. So right. it was him and Schneider as the Menendez brothers, and we had this crazy idea, this concept of a courtroom where their defense was going to be. That they didn't kill their family. They didn't kill their father and mother. That there were two heretofore unknown other Menendez brothers, um, <laughs> who had been locked up in like a basement by their <laughs> abusive father who had killed their parents. And it was sort of like, uh, are these other Menendez brothers here today? Yes, they are. We'll go get them. And then the two of them would get up and leave the stand, go outside, switch sides and come back and then sit back down and go, we are Jose Jr. and Felipe Menendez. We killed our father because he said we were bad at tennis and whatever, whatever. And then the question just became a lot of, so weird to believe you are two different Menendez brothers and not the other two Menendez brothers just pretending. Yes, that's correct. And where are the other two Menendez brothers? They are in the bathroom right now. <laughs> Can you go get them? Yes, we will. And then they would go out suicide. <laughs> and this went on and on and on and on. And I remember sitting in a room at five in the morning with Jim Downey basically laying on a couch, kind of prone. And I, and, and I, you know, you and I have written together. I've written with lots of people together. When you write, it's sort of a, I can't explain it. You're sort of you're, you're in a vibe. You're in a vibe. It's, it's, and you're like, it's yeah. like doing a podcast. Exactly. You're sitting there going, imagine yeah, this, back imagine and forth, this, back and this. this. What about that? Oh, write that down. This was different. I, I threw stuff in. I, I will definitely say I threw stuff in. Jim was dictating. Jim was dictating from a sketch he was reading in his head. I like like a. I I, I liken him to like one of these like prodigy chess players that's pl- already he's, he's playing the kid that's searching the game. for Bobby Fischer. Yeah, like I I can't explain it and. 
don't get me wrong, Al Franken is absolutely hilarious, and writing with Al is absolutely hilarious. But Jim was dictating from a sketch that his head had he already written. The, he sees I don't know it like, what was like going. Like Gretzky yeah. saw hockey. Yes, exactly. Like, like he's four steps out yeah. of the game. And that's the reason why just even things like, you know, like a couple of years ago, like Lockbox, the uh, the Al Gore debate sketches, where like, you know, Al Gore to this day blames like those debate sketches partially for his loss. Like when that, he's like, I'll put it in the yeah, lock lockbox. Box. Exactly. And like, that's all Jim. I mean, stuff like that. So anyway, Jim Downey, just comedy people should know about Jim Downey. I feel like they don't. So um, you have a drink with him in New York? I have a drink with him in New York. And do you a, have to be funny in no, that? No, it was weird. He was doing a lot of talking and asking me questions at the time I remember. And again, I didn't know this guy just by reputation. He was very concerned that I didn't want to be an actor. Like, I guess that was an ongoing issue at the show of writers who secretly were trying to be on the show. So he was like, you don't want to yeah, act. He was like, you don't want to act. I was like, no, not at all. And And I kind of left there kind of going and he kind of went okay bye and we, we it was finished i remember i had to call al and go i think i have the job but i'm not sure he's like i'll call you back and they called me back like, yeah you got you got the job and i you know showed up for work and i was the single only new hire on the writing staff that year how old are you 21 I was, I was i was still 21 so i started work there at 21 and I remember I was so new. My birthday was in early September. It was or mid September, September 24th. And I was such a new writer and I was so scared. I told no one it was my birthday and we were rewriting and I was at the table and literally I never got up because you didn't want to leave the table. And like, so I, I spoke to no person I knew <laughs> on my 22nd birthday because I was just like, I better not leave the table. Mm -hmm. I don't want to. I don't want to rock the boat in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> it was, it was, it was like crazy, and it was, I mean, truly a, a dream job. I who mean, was there at the time? At the uh, first on the writing staff before the cast, who was writing there? At the um, at the time, it was just this amazing writing staff because Al was still there, and obviously Jim was still running things, uh, and you had uh, Jack Handy was still there. He may have been in and out at that point, but he was there. Um, Bonnie and Terry Turner, who went on to create um, Wayne's World, Wayne's World and stuff. Um, Steve Corin, who was my office mate, a uh, wonderful writer who went on to write some of the SNL movies and just a lot of great stuff, worked on uh, Seinfeld with me as well. Uh, Ian Maxstone Graham, who went on to The Simpsons. Um, Isn't it, is he the tall the really guy? Tall, the tall guy, yes. Yeah, so we made about. a joke, too, from the picture of Studio yes, 54. Yes, yes, exactly. In the Clerks cartoon, there's one episode where Leonardo, Leonardo, uh, Alec Baldwin, yep. again, ahead of the curve on the comedic side yep, with Alec Baldwin, ahead way ahead yes. Um, he, uh, he's, he's talking about like he's dying and, and, uh, he, and his assistant, Mr. Plug is just like, um, Dan Etheridge, uh, Dan Etheridge. Uh, he was like uh, from Nooner and, and Smog Ghost Morning Show, our Dan at Party Down. Did you love Party Down? Love Party Down. Isn't it yeah. fucking amazing? And then isn't it amazing that something that funny gets canceled? And then you go like, no, I guess it's not amazing. It happens fucking it, all the time. It happens time. all the time. And then it's so funny to watch every show on television picking its bones. It, yes. Yeah. So like every one by one, one and people, then three yeah. at a time, four at a time. There's like, this was a good show. Yeah. Um, that he, uh, Mr. Plug is just like, we have to find a suitable photo for your, for your, uh, uh, uh when you die. The Obituary. Memorial. Oh, the Memorial. Yeah. And uh, it's a photo of, of of Leonardo, Leonardo, Elton John, and who was it? One other person, but isn't that like Bianca Jagger or something? It was like a, it was just this crazy inside weird Studio Fifty Four joke. And then in the, the tall, background, a tall man holding a drink because Ian <laughs> was in college back in the seventies during the heyday of Studio Fifty Four, and there was a Studio Fifty Four book that was published and. 
I remember like seeing the pictures in Vanity Fair, and it's like, oh my god, there's Ian Maxstone Graham, <laughs> and I was obsessed with sticking him in there. <laughs> Joke for no one, but I love it to this day. <laughs> the um, okay, so he's on the and staff. And by the way, and I and just to give them as much credit is, um, even the, at that point, guys like Sandler and Spade, uh, Spade and uh, Schneider were as much writers as they were supporting players. So those guys were actively writing as well, and uh, for other people, not just themselves, mostly for themselves, but still, you know, but certainly for the host, obviously, and sometimes for other people, and they and they truly. People know them obviously as actors, but they, you know, really funny guys and truly really great writers. So, you know, there was there was that added element of the writing staff as well. And I think people forget about. So now they were in the cast as well. Who they else was in your cast? They were supporting players. Okay. But my first year was like this amazing year. I mean, it was still like Dana Carvey, Phil Hartman, Kevin Nealon. Oh I mean, God. it was insane. And uh, our big piece that year. That I, you know, that I got to help with, which I, it was one of my fond memories, was one of these big debate sketches where Phil played Clinton and Dana did Ross Perot and Bush. We pre-taped, pre-taped. The, the Perot stuff and built it, so it was sort of this amazing sort of thing that SNL doesn't do much: mixing the live, live with, with a pre-taped yeah. element. But that's, I mean, how good Dana was, and people. You know, Dana, I know he pops back every now and then to host SNL, but his impressions were transcendent. Mm. Right? There's no other word. He, he just, was one of those dudes where you were just like, never leave the show, yeah. dude. Like you were Which, born uh, yeah. to do the show. The way Carson did The Tonight Show for 30 years, Dana Carvey should still be doing Saturday Night Live. There are people that are just fucking, I mean, I know Kristen Wiig just left this the end of the season, but. She's one of those people that is born to be yeah. on the show. Phil Hartman was born like you, not utility players, cast members that could have lasted. Dan Aykroyd, if he wanted it, right. could have could still, still be, be doing yes, it. Absolutely. Like some cats, you know, are transitional or they're meant for other things. Even fucking well, what's his Wayne's World and Cat in the Hat. Oh, Mike, yeah, Mike Myers was born to do SNL. Like he's natural at doing multiple characters. He's got sketch written in his blood. But then a lot of people go like, yeah, there's not a lot of money there, man. No, I get, I mean, look, I get why you move on. Look, I know why I moved on, but it's just. Why like, did you move on eventually? I mean, it was, it was it's an abusive schedule. It really is. I mean, it I was. It murders you. You live there, you sleep there. I mean, and when I look back now, it was amazing training. I mean, just because you are the, not just the writer of your piece, but you're almost like the mini producer of your piece. And so, you know, if. At the Lampoon, I kind of got to learn to have sort of like the unfunny beaten out of me and learn not to be precious. At SNL, I, I, I just learned all these other things, how to talk to actors, how to talk to a director, uh, started editing pieces at night, you know, thing like how to edit, like just all these skills that I do think, like if you come out to LA and get a job on a sitcom and you're a staff writer, you're just sitting in a room. You don't, you may rise up the, the levels, but You've never had to edit. You've never had to whatever. So all these just amazing things that at the time where you're going, oh, it's 5 a.m. and I'm in an edit room, and this is before Avid, so it's tape to tape. Oh, my God. You're cutting on like fucking betas. To make a little 30-second like opening, like little funny kind of like like opening credits thing was like a two-hour process. And by the way, it was all NBC Union. So there was a guy that would sit next to you that would call the edit, but then there was a guy that actually would press the buttons. 
And the guy that would press the buttons was never as good as the guy that's sitting back there cause, calling the edit. But because he was so good, he was no longer allowed to hit the buttons. And it, you just kind of, and it was sort of that, that's sort of the world of unions. Yeah. <laughs> Which I love. I love unions. <laughs> that, they're the only people I'm scared of. Yeah. Unions are great. Yeah. You're like, yeah. fuck fucking Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> unions. Like, yeah. What's Seth MacFarlane going to do to me? Unions. You guys are great. Um, um, so, but you know, so the training was amazing, but I mean, I, I was sleeping at the office three days a week. It got to the point where I used to like go and visit friends in California on the off weeks to just stop myself from going into the, uh, into the office. It was, it's this it addictive thing. Like, yeah. do you watch, um, 30 Rock? Yes. Is it indicative of, I mean, it's a highly Obviously. version, but. Yeah, although even they, I don't think, get into as much that notion of all-nighters that we would do. Because you'd get in there on Monday, and at about like 5 o'clock, you'd meet the host. And then the table read of the, of the week's sketches was Wednesday at like, I don't know, 4 p.m. So you basically, there were 48 hours till stuff had to be in so it could be read. And if you're a young writer and you want to get stuff on, can I stay up 48 hours and how many sketches can I write and work on that make sense and get them in? And, and then the show is picked and obviously you have good weeks and bad weeks and then an insane rewriting process. Cause, um, while we were incredibly disorganized, um, you know, and you know, sometimes we didn't start when we were supposed to and all those kinds of things that I think, I guess, aren't, you can criticize Jim Downey as a producer showrunner for. We did vigorous, like, like amazing rewrites of pieces where we took stuff that was just garbage that was on for various reasons, like the host liked it or the host is good in this or that actor is light on the show this week and really just turned things into like, you know, like from Sketches nothing into something. Yes, exactly. Memorable. Exactly. Um, but it just, you know, you, it just, they were like dog years. So I was there three years and I was exhausted. That was it? Your entire tenure in SNL? Yeah, three years. years, but it felt like, you know, it felt like 21 years. And I was vaguely aware by the end, I was drinking a lot. And I don't really, mean, I don't mean like blackout. I don't even drinking. think about you as that guy. I don't either, but I am, vi- I am very aware in that like sort of like last year or so that it was very much like we're going to the after party. And then like drinking a, like a bottle or two of wine and like then going out to the after, after, like we found this like weird New York city, like after hours, like blackjack place and like going and playing there. And then I would stumble home at six in the morning and I used to videotape the show. And before I would go to bed, I would watch the show because it's one thing to see it in the studio where the crowd is always hot. And I would sit there and I would watch it like at six in the morning. I'd watch the whole show on video and then kind of go, this was not as good as we thought it was there. It was really? Like, yeah, it was brutal because you, you like, you, you get hyped on the energy and I'd sit there and kind of go over the show and watch it. Not that I had that much effect on it, but it was just like, it, and, and I was, just, I was unhappy. It just was, it just was. It was got to yeah. that point. Yeah. And again, like I said, it's not like anyone, there was no intervention or anything, but I was aware that like, well, there has to be something else where I don't feel the need to drink so much after the end of a show. <laughs> and that eventually, years later, becomes the dictator, which eventually <laughs> we will get to talk to, man. But on day five. Hey, on day five of this in depth. I knew the moment we got in front of a mic together. There's so much <laughs> territory to cover because you do have the dream job for oh. so many of us, for so many people that love comedy. Like, You've traveled this wonderful road and 
you you're you're a dude who don't get enough credit you know you're a dude that doesn't like it. when you sit here and listen to you tell the story it's like my god he's been there in key moments of comedy in the last fucking 20 years you're like forrest gump um and we're gonna get to way more of that man so this is part one of sit down some interview with uh dave comedy comedy journeyman <laughs> Uh, as perfect from Horace Mann, <laughs> uh, Dave Mandel. Uh, we'll come back next. Uh, shit, I don't know when we'll do it again. Whenever you got time, we'll figure it out. But I, it I'm out. gonna, I'm, I'm gonna just force my plug. Plug it. Go see the dictator now. While yes, we're right while we're now, talking, go see the dictator. Tell them what you did on it, real quick. Um, this was written by uh, Jeff Schaefer and Alec Berg, uh, guys I've written with. Since Who we'll talk about next yes, we'll episode. Get to them your a lot. deep yes, relationship exactly. that goes back years. With Schaefer and Berg exactly. done so much with and him. and then Sasha. This is an idea that uh, we had done some work with Sasha Baron Cohen. Um, obviously, Borat speaks for itself. How brilliant that is! Right. And uh, sort of the opportunity arose where he sort of said, "Would you guys, if you guys have something to pitch me, you know, pitch me." We pitched him this dictator idea that he sort of took a shine to, and then we began sort of collaborating with him on it. And uh, and uh, and this and so we sort of we're the writers, we're the producers of it. So you were there the whole time. Um, we directed the whole time. Was directed by Larry Charles, who's so the guy another, who did who did Born and Bruno, but also a Curb and Seinfeld guy, which was sort of oh my god. If you're going to have a director that you can kind of whisper in his ear and know that he's not going to go, why are you whispering in my ear? It's great to have a guy that you I've worked with. You know, we had worked with so much, um, and uh, you know, uh, it, it was uh, it was a pretty just amazing experience, just because it we we went from pitching it to writing it to making it to it being out like really quickly i mean i have all those kinds of stories that everyone has of the you know the movies that i've been working on for 10 years and have gone nowhere <laughs> right. and this one like legitimately in like two years went from like you know pitching to being in theaters which is just kind of a wild ride so for, yeah for a fucking kid <clears throat> who thought maybe i'll do some entertain vague entertainment law yeah, exactly entertainment so law maybe i can get the guy who well played. that's really what's exciting about it is the law implications <laughs> oh the contracts on the dictator were fascinating <laughs> i can't wait to share them that little boy winds up uh with his name all over a fucking movie that's everywhere right now and i mean just say, we went out comedic talent we were in london planet. for the premiere and you're just kind of going i'm walking a red carpet on this thing i wrote and i know you've done it before and i'd done it like once maybe but it was just like it was like, wow, this is this is wild. You've yeah. made it, sir, yeah. kind of thing. Um, we'll hear way more about it. Go see The Dictator right now uh, while it's in theaters uh, and when you hear this. Uh, and uh, we'll sit down and talk to Dave Mandel next week, man, here on some interview. God damn it, dude. That's some fucking fascinating stuff right there. You did it. That flew by. Phenomenal job. That flew by. Here go to theme song. This has been a production of Smodco Internet Radio.